We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Welcome everybody back to Steve Cunningham with Sense of Adelia with Dr. Alan Finister, a continuation of the Councils of the Church. And this week we're getting closer to our times, ladies and gents, with Vatican One, or the First Vatican Council, if you're nasty. Doctor, how you doing? Very well, thank you very much, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, this is the biggest gap between any two ecumenical councils in the history of the Church. Between Trent and Vatican One, it's bigger even than the gap between the Council of Jerusalem that the Apostles held and uh, the First Council of Nicaea. So, um, so it, it's more than three hundred years, and um, uh, and there are probably lots of reasons for that. Um, and um, uh, but in a way, the story of how, what Vatican One is and what happens at Vatican One. And why it doesn't get finished because Vatican I was going to be a big council with lots of documents and um, and loads of definitions and instead it only produces two documents they are unbelievably important documents but 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 it only produced two documents um, and uh, and the reason for that is that some um, the day after the second of the two documents was uh, defined the document on papal infallibility and universal jurisdiction um, uh, the Franco-Prussian War broke out literally the next day, and that led to a sequence of events which within a few months after the Council meant that Rome was occupied by the newly created Kingdom of Italy, the Pope was a prisoner in the Vatican, and, uh, and he wasn't able to come out again, basically, until the late 1920s. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, it wasn't... So it was very dramatic, and, and in fact, Vatican I technically was still suspended rather than concluded until um, until John the Twenty Third decided to call Vatican II, and there was some decision as to whether or not there was some discussion as to whether or not that he would just resume Vatican I uh, nearly a hundred years after it had concluded, or whether he would um, whether he would call a new council. In the end, he decided to call a new council, so he he actually dissolved in a weird sort of footnote to history, dissolved the First Vatican Council. So in a certain sense, you could say that it's the longest council in the history of the church, even though it only produced two documents, but there we are. Um, so um, uh, one of the problems, so, so the story of how it happens is the story of how Trent, of, of the things that Trent didn't fix and eventually why things went wrong. And although that's a long story, um, in a way the, the answer to why it happened uh, come, appears very early in, in, in the events immediately after Trent. Um, so, so at the end of the council, at the very end of the Council of Trent, in the final session, um, 
the president of the council said, most illustrious lords and most reverend fathers, does it please you that to the praise of almighty God an end be put to this holy ecumenical council and that the confirmation of each and all the things which have been decreed and defined therein under the Roman pontiffs, Paul III and Julius III of happy memory, as well as under our most holy lord, Pius IV, be sought in the name of this, of this holy council by the presidents and legates of the apostolic see from the most blessed Roman pontiff. And the bishops of Trent required, replied, it pleases us hereupon the most illustrious and most reverend Cardinal Morone, the first legate and president blessing the Holy Council said, after having given thanks to God, most reverend fathers go in peace. And they replied, Amen. And then the Cardinal of Lorraine stood up and he said, to the most blessed pious Pope and our Lord Pontiff of the Holy Universal Church, many years and eternal memory. And the bishops shouted back, O Lord, do thou preserve for very long, for many years, the most holy father to thy church. And then Cardinal Lorraine said, to the souls, the most blessed sovereign pontiffs, Paul III and Julius III, by whose authority this holy general council was begun, peace from the Lord and eternal glory and happiness in the light of the saints. And the bishops shouted, be their memory in benediction. And then the Cardinal said, may the memory of the Emperor Charles V and of the most serene kings who have promoted and protected this universal council be in benediction and then the cardinal and then the bishops shouted amen amen and then the cardinal said to the most serene Emperor Ferdinand ever august orthodox and peaceful and to all our kings states and princes many years and the and the bishops shouted preserve O Lord the pious and Christian Emperor O heavenly Emperor protect earthly kings the preservers of the true faith and the cardinal said to the legates the apostolic see and the presidents of this council many years and many thanks and the bishops shouted many thanks the lords reward them and then the cardinal said to the most reverend cardinals the most illustrious ambassadors and the bishops shouted many thanks many years and the cardinal said to the most holy bishops life and a happy return to their churches and the, the bishops shouted to the heralds of truth perpetual memory to the orthodox senate many years and then the cardinal said to the holy ecumenical council of trent let us confess its faith let us always observe its decrees and the bishops shouted let us always confess let us always observe and then the cardinal said we all believe thus we all think the same agreeing therein and embracing them we all subscribe this is the faith of the blessed peter of the apostles of the faith of the fathers this is the faith of the orthodox and the bishop shouted thus we believe thus we think thus we subscribe and then the cardinal said adhering to these decrees may we be made worthy of the mercies and grace of the first and great supreme priest jesus christ our god our inviolate lady the holy mother of god and all the saints interceding and the bishop shouted so be it amen amen and then the cardinal shouted anathema to all heretics and the bishops replied anathema anathema and then they went home <laughs> so, so uh, that was quite a good conclusion to the council trends um however the cardinal loren who was the principal kind of matri um, master of ceremonies and cheerleader there he was um he was member of this um of this uh uh French great princely aristocratic family, the House of Lorraine, which had a cadet branch called the House of Guise, which he belonged to. And um, and they were very important in French politics. And as the uh, and not only that, but they were according to probably kind of sort of possibly reliable, but certainly generally believed in at the time genealogy, um, were the senior descendants of Charlemagne. So they always kind of like made the 
kings of France a little bit nervous because they, you know, the kings of France had that kind of Denethor feel to them relative to the sort of Aragorn feel of the House of Lorraine. Um, and uh, and um, there was something, and, and so uh, now as the Council of Trent came to an end, uh, France, the fate of France was in the balance. So the, the wars of religion, as they're known in France, had already begun. And uh, the, the king of France, a, a little earlier, um, King uh, Henry II, had tried to end the feud between the House of Habsburg and the, um, the French kings, which had kicked off in the 1520s or, or just beforehand. And, um, uh, but in the end was going to go on until the middle of the 18th century and be utterly disastrous for the fortunes of Christendom. But um, Henry II had tried to bring it to an end and they, they'd had a treaty and they, to celebrate this treaty, they had a big joust. And um, at, this, uh, at this joust, uh, Henry II was killed in a jousting accident, <laughs> and um, uh, and his not very uh, his not very healthy son uh, Francis II became king, and Francis II was uh, was married to Mary Queen of Scots, who was the heiress to the Kingdom of Scotland, and um, and had been smuggled out of the country to stop her being kidnapped by the English, and uh, betrothed to the to the heir to the King of France when she was just a baby. And well, she was a little girl, so I think she managed to walk on the boat under her own steam. But the um, but uh, um, and um, so this was a big power block, and she, of course, uh, that was potentially arising here, especially because uh, Queen Mary, the first of England, who had restored the Catholic faith, uh, was just about to die. So um, so she um, and 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 her heir in law in England was the evil Elizabeth Boleyn so-called Elizabeth I of England, who Pius V called uh, pretended Queen of England and servant of crime, who, uh, who reintroduced Protestantism into England. And, um, uh, but she wasn't the rightful heir to the throne because she was illegitimate, because she's the daughter of Anne Boleyn, um, uh, who Henry VIII had um, uh, broken with Rome in order to pretend he could marry. Um, and um, so in fact, so if, if Elizabeth is indeed Elizabeth Boleyn and not Elizabeth Tudor and not the rightful heir to the throne, then the, 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 right, the next in line to the throne was none other than Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, so by, and she started bearing the arms, which would later be borne by the Stuart dynasty when it, when it reigned in England, uh, combining the arms of England, France, Scotland, and Ireland uh, in a single coat of arms. So, you know, um, she wasn't, she was parking her heraldic tanks on Elizabeth I's lawn. Um, and um, yeah, so... Um, but her mother was also a member of the House of Guise, right? This cadet branch of the House of Lorraine, and they they became they became seen as the the ultimate. I mean, American Scots's policies were not very well judged at all and went horribly wrong for her. Um, but uh, when she got back to Scotland, because her husband, in fact, only lived for a very short time and then died, and she was packed off back to uh, back to Scotland by the Queen Mother, who 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 was annoyed uh, because under the reign of her son. Um, uh, the, the country had been dominated by the House of Lorraine because because they they were seen as as the sponsors in France of Mary Queen of Scots. Now the House of Lorraine became associated with the Catholic cause in France, 
and um and under so so none of the um none of the children of henry the second had any kids so the, so his sons succeeded each other in turn down to the last one henry the third and during the, during their successive reigns um chaos engulfed france and calvinism uh, swept through the country and um and it led to this kind of on and off civil war which carried on until the 1590s, which is called, which is called the Wars of Religion. And, um, and it was all or nothing. The Calvinists were out to take over France and turn it into a Calvinist country. And uh, if you want to know what that looks like, you know, you, you just look at what happened to Scotland, because American Scots completely lost control of Scotland. Um, in fact, she'd already kind of lost control of it before she got back there. Um, and um, and it, it became a, a sort of, you know, a bit like Iran, except Calvinist. Um, and, um, and, you know, they, they were very logical, the Calvinists. So, you know, if the mass is idolatrous, the penalty for idolatry is death. So the penalty for going to mass is death. Um, and uh, so it's very, you know, systematic. Meanwhile, the Catholics in France were pretty vigorous as well. And they, they were kind of like, well, you know, this is heresy. It's just like the Albigensians. We, we know what we do to the Albigensians. That's what we're going to do to you. So there's kind of, um, there's, there's a, a very, uh, a, you know, it's an all or nothing conflict. But in the middle of this conflict, there's another party um, a more sinister party than, than than the Calvinists, who are called the Regalists. So basically what they think, what they believe in is absolute royal authority. And they're not so interested in whether Calvinism or Catholicism is true. They, they, they favour the Catholic side in the war because, uh, but very conditionally, uh, because they that's the majority religion and that's what they think would be the easiest instrument of absolute royal authority for them but that's but that's the that's why they're interested in it they're not interested in it because because they're zeal for the catholic faith so you've got these three parties um uh in this on and off civil war the huguenots who are the calvinists the catholic league headed up by the uh, the duke de guise and the and later the cardinal and the cardinal de guise um and then the um and then the uh, the regalists associated with with the with the crown itself, and um, uh, now it got pretty it got pretty radical on all sides, um, and um, the problem was that Henry the Third, the last of the sons of Henry the Second, um, he had no children, uh, and uh, he had no cousins uh, within any distance basically of him in the male line france is subject to salic law um this is the cause of the the war great hundred years war between um england and france because the king of england if you allowed people to inherit through the female line would have become the king but if you excluded people from inheriting through the female line then the then the the house of valois uh, would inherit the throne this was when the the original direct descendants of of uh, the King Hugh Capet back in the 10th century, not to completely confuse everything, but the, 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 his direct line died out. And so the, uh, there was this problem which was about to recur at the beginning of the 16th century, occurred back in the 14th century, which was that, um, which was that, that it was only a relatively distant cousin who, um, who was now the heir if you ignored all the females. Um, but if you didn't ignore the females, it would have been the King of England. So this problem was about to recur because King Henry III had no children um, and therefore the next in line, if you allowed females, was the daughter, Princess Clara Eugenia, of King Philip II of Spain. 
um, who at that time was the the leader of the counter the military wing of the Counter Reformation, um, and is a Habsburg. And um, but if you uh, ignored if you ignore all the females according to the the, the Salic law, uh, then it goes to like the fourteenth cousin or something ridiculous. I might I think it's something like the fourteenth cousin. So I mean, unbelievably distant. I mean, essentially they're not related to all intents and purposes um, uh, of um, of of the king of Henry the Third. And the fourteenth cousin of the king is Henry of Navarre, the leader of the Protestant faction, the leader of the Huguenots. So if Henry the Third dies, it goes to the Protestants. The crown itself will go to the Protestants. And then at that point, of course, the the treacherous and uh, and 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 not really very pious regalists, as it were, switch sides. Right? They they go to they go to the Protestant cause instead. So. Um, uh, so obviously the tension is massive, and the Catholics are basically no, no, that we don't care. We're not that interested in hereditary monarchy. That that a fourteenth cousin who is the leader of the heretics gets to become king just in order to honour the principle of Salic law. Uh-uh. And and this is made even more, even more tense because um, because the um, the leaders of the Catholic group are the are at least very widely believed to be, possibly are, the heirs of Charlemagne, right? So and it's his dynasty that was dislodged by this King Hugh Capet all the way back um, in the uh, 10th century, right? So, so the, so, so the, obviously Henry III is very suspicious because he knows that all the Catholic League think we're not going to honour the hereditary principle in regard to your family if it goes to a Protestant. And the leader of the Catholic League is the, is, is the member of the dynasty who most obviously, uh, most obvious alternative dynasty for the, for the Kingdom of France. Um, so, so we're looking at a, a massive tension here. And, um, and the, the Catholic League are very, very suspicious of the king. They don't trust him at all. They, 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 and he, the king's being much too friendly with Henry of Navarre, and uh, and 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 they're suspicious that already even Henry the Third might switch sides to support the Protestants, and um, and then Henry the Third murders the Duke de Guise and the uh, Cardinal de Guise, um, and so 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 really really supports thinking, ha ha, that's clever, that deals with the Catholic League, but of course the reaction to that. Is is absolutely nuclear on the part of the Catholic League. The the, the, the Paris at this time is very Catholic, and the um, the Sorbonne, the University of Paris Theology Faculty, issues uh, a, a a rather pointed theological opinion slash decree saying that tyrannicide is perfectly okay. By the way, chaps, just mentioning tyrannicide is often perfectly all right. And and Henry of Navarre is excommunicate because he's Protestant, and um, so. According to high medieval Catholic, you know, theory of, of of political power, he can't hold power anyway because he's um he's a uh, he's a heretic. He's not he's outside of the church, therefore he's outside of the community of Christendom, therefore he can't hold power. So so the um uh, so then um, a Dominican lay brother called Jacques Clement goes to see um, King Henry the Third. Says he has an important message for him. 
and um, and so Henry the Third lets him in, and uh, Jacques Clement murders murders King Henry the Third. So that for being a bad Catholic. So that's how hardline the Dominicans were in the 16th century. Apparently, um, uh, might be overestimating this, but but uh, that, that you could get you get executed, you get you get assassinated for being a bad Catholic, not just for being a heretic. He wasn't, as far as we can tell, an outright heretic. Imagine that today. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Jacques Clément is killed by the king's guard immediately afterwards, which is probably good for him because the penalty for regicide of French French law is to be torn apart by wild horses. So, <laughs> so being killed by the uh, being killed by the uh, the king's guard is probably the best uh, best way he could have gone at that point. Um, the Pope hears about this and he delivers this amazing oration all about what an amazing guy Jacques Clément is. And, and 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 how we should all praise him and thank him and and he compares him to I've forgotten the name of the character in in, in Judges who who uh, who who what does he do I forgot what he does but it's something to do with an elephant anyway but the uh, but um, but the, so he could, he's like a biblical hero he should be canonized isn't he marvelous and um, so uh, but yeah I mean it's um it's it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, and then, of course, the funny thing is, I mean, later on, I'm just looking something up. Um, uh, later on, uh, in um, in uh, two hundred years later, the, the the Catholic Church is seen in um, uh, as as like as the number one uh, royalist group. Um, you know, the number one force for conservative royalism um, in uh, in in the West. And but at this time, that is quite the contrary. The Catholic Church is seen as as dangerous, radical nutters, um, uh, with you know uh, with you know um, uh, Dominican assassins charging all over the place in order to bring down the baddies. Um, uh, and uh, in fact, um, King James the Sixth of Scotland and uh, First of England, um, Mary Queen of Scots's son. Um, uh, she um, uh, he uh, he actually invents the the theory of the divine right of kings. People often think this is a medieval theory, but it's not at all. It's a it's an early modern Protestant theory, um, and it's it's partly developed in kind of opposition to the extreme radical ideas of of the Catholics against uh, against Protestant regimes in the in the late 16th century. But anyway, so. Henry III is dead. That means that, uh, that Henry of Navarre, according to a strict hereditary succession, is now the head of the Protestants, is now the king. The Catholic League, which controls a large chunk of the country, including Paris, um, uh, is not having any of that. And uh, so initially they, they, they try and go for the guy who's the next in line after Henry of Navarre. And he is Henry of Navarre's uncle, the Cardinal de Bourbon. And he is really ancient and he's a cleric. So he's not going to have any legitimate kids and he's really old. And Henry of Navarre immediately locks him up because he's like, nah. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so they, they, they sort of, so that the Catholic League sort of play pretends that this guy uh, who they call Charles X um, uh, is is the king for the time being as a sort of holding action because it gives him time to work out what on earth to do because he's not going to have any more have any kids because he's he's a cardinal um, and he's not going to have any legitimate kids um, and uh, and anyway he's in prison so that they've got they can't communicate with him and um, so they work on their theories in the meantime and what they basically decide is that they're going to turn France into a sort of uh, an elective monarchy a little bit like uh, Poland has become. 
Um, so Poland, the Dynast Royal Dynasty in Poland dies out a, a short while before this, and and it becomes an elective kingdom uh, from that point onwards until it gets uh, annexed by uh, Austria, Prussia, and Russia at the end of the 18th century. And um, so so they think, well, we're going to at least so the Estates General will meet, which is sort of kind of the French legislature. Um, sort of, uh, and only Catholics will be allowed to vote for it because King of France is a community of the baptized and uh, you're going to be baptized and in communion with the Pope to be a proper, as it were, citizen of France. So they will vote for the Estates General, the Estates General will meet and then we will um, we will offer the crown, and it does, they, they get together as Catholic Estates General, and the plan is to offer the crown to, the, to, the, to Clara Eugenia, the, the daughter of King Philip II, so long as she marries a French prince. So what they wanted to do is marry one of the one of the uh, chief members of the Duchy of the of the House of Lorraine, right? So the House of Lorraine will be put back on the throne, and it'll be the nearest relative, ignoring Salic law of King Henry II, and and so you'll have this. In fact, interestingly, you'll have the the dynasty of Habsburg Lorraine, which actually does come into existence. In the um, in the 18th century, through a different marriage of of the Duke of Lorraine to a to a Habsburg princess, um, from which all the current Habsburgs are descended, but it would have happened uh, um, 200 years earlier, um, or 100 and a bit years earlier in the um, in the 16th century, and so it looks like France is going to become a kind of royal Catholic militant republic. Um, uh, and, and interestingly, this is in 1589, so it's, it's uh, the, the assassination of of Henry III by um, Jacques Clemence is 200 years prior to the French Revolution. So, 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 so France looked like it might have become like the most militant constitutionally Catholic uh, state. Um, but then uh, two, two things happen, one of which is definitely disastrous and the other one I suppose we shouldn't call disastrous, but it's hard not to. Uh, one is that Philip II refuses. He says, no, 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 my daughter's going to marry a nice Habsburg cousin from the Austrian branch of the Habsburgs. She's not going to marry a French prince. You'll just, if you want her, you'll have to have her uh, as married to a Habsburg. So, that, so then, so then that France would just become part of another Habsburg monarchy. And, um, and that's just too much. For the for the for the uh, even the militant Catholic League of States General that that's they just basically Philip II says just hand over the King of France to me and we'll forget all about it and everything will be fine and they're like no that's that, that's just too much for them so they they can't they're so frozen their plan is ruined because Philip II won't allow a Clara Eugenia to marry a French prince and they don't know what to do at this point because they feel that that it's too much no one will accept it um, and then Henry of Navarre. Uh, converts, possibly converts to Catholicism. Famously, he's supposed to have said, Paris is worth the mass, or Paris is worth a mass. And, um, and uh, so he basically uh, undermines the entire basis of this manoeuvre, which the Catholic League was planning, um, by, by saying, okay, I'll, I'll be a Catholic then. Okay, um, and uh, and they don't really know what to do at that point. So then he then he he manages to get to Reims and he manages to get crowned, and eventually and he gets the excommunication lifted by Rome. Rome sort of kind of tries to be pleased about it, but everybody's a little bit suspicious. And basically, so eventually, what happened in the end? Um, 
Henry the Fourth, uh, Henry Navarre, uh, does start returns to the old French policy of trying to undermine the Habsburgs' attempts to um, defend Christendom, and he gets assassinated by another guy um, uh, in in a street in Paris, and he does get torn apart by wild horses. Um, but by then, by then, Henry of Navarre has had has had a son, a baby, um, Louis the Thirteenth, and uh, so it kind of calms down because they think, well, Louis XIII is a baby; he's going to be raised as a Catholic. There's the, so there won't be suspicion that he's a secret Protestant in the same way. But the effect of all this is that uh, essentially the regalists win the French wars of religion. Now, the Council of Trent had um, had been supposed to, if you remember from last time, consider uh, the reformation of the princes at the end. Uh, that's one of the questions it was supposed to, and, and it never gets round to it. Now, in those acclamations that I, I read out from the end of the council, I mean, it's very prominent, the role of the emperor, uh, Charles V and his brother who succeeded him as, as emperor and all this kind of stuff. And so it's very much an integrated understanding of Christendom that's, that's, that's expressed by those acclamations, you know, with the Pope and the temporal powers working together and heretics being anathema and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, it, you know, it sounds like everything's all right there, but... The fact that um, the fact that uh, it doesn't um, the fact that the, the, the question of, of what what we're going to do about the temporal power and its role is never considered is a big problem. Um, and uh, the fact that the Cardinal Lorenz family never in the end uh, ends up back on the French throne. Uh, and instead, the House of Bourbon, um, Henry of Navarre's dynasty, uh, ends up on the throne and effectively meaning that the regalists win the, the um, French wars of religion. That, that's a big problem that's kind of lurking there. And, and, and what that does is it bleeds authority away from the church and from the papacy uh, because the... Um, because Christendom is 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 a unit, you know that the kings are a kind of ruler, and the emp within Christendom, the emperor is the temporal leader of of the temp of, of rulers of, of the temporal rulers of Christendom, and and so the 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 order of Christendom is fractured, and um and what it means is that the Pope is constantly beholden to the the temporal rulers, the kings, for them not trying to do anything like Henry VIII and split off and try and create their own national churches so the spiritual power is crippled in its in its authority relative to the temporal power and um and cynicism has prevailed so so paris uh, the, the the expression paris is worth a mass of henry the fourth is kind of shadowed in um in germany by the the uh, phrase that's used in the peace of augsburg when in uh, 1555 when the um when the uh um Charles V gives up in despair at the idea of defeating permanently the Protestants in Germany. He has to do this deal with them whereby they get to be permanently uh, recognised as legitimate rulers of their parts of Germany. And uh, which is shouldn't be possible because, you know, if you're excommunicate, you're not a, you're not a citizen of Christendom. So you shouldn't be able to hold office. So but so so that's that's seriously undermining uh, the, um, the the fundamental constitution of Christendom. 
and uh, and this this prince and in fact Charles V can't bear to actually sign up to this, so he abdicates in favour of his brother, who's the guy who Ferdinand, who's the one who's being acclaimed in the closing acclamations in Florence, sorry Florence in Trent, and Charles V retires to a monastery in Spain and and lives out the rest of his life there, having abdicated. He divides his dominions, so Philip II is is given Spain, his son, and Ferdinand is given uh, given the empire and the Austrian dominions. That's why there's two two um, branches of the House of Habsburg from that point onwards. Charles V goes off to this monastery and surrounds himself with clocks for the rest of his life. It's very strange. Uh, so I a bit of a nervous breakdown there about, about having failed to uh, crush the Reformation. And, uh, and yeah, he dies a few years later in Spain. And, uh, the, um, and instead of Jacques Clement being canonised for heroically assassinating Henry III, um, uh, the French Dominicans, my, my sister-in-law, who's a Dominican nun, was telling me uh, that the French Dominicans were, were compelled to sing like an extra prayer of reparation every day for having been involved in regicide for the, for the rest of the history of the Kingdom of France. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, um, I believe Hughes uh, claims, I've never seen this anywhere else, I don't think he footnotes it, but I mean, Hughes knows his stuff, so I assume he's right, that... that, uh, that so bad did the absolutism of the French monarchs become that by the 18th century, they, they were trying to get the line, um, uh, thou hast pulled the mighty from their thrones and raised the poor and lowly, omitted from the Magnificat, lest it gave people funny ideas. Um, and um, and, uh, and, the, and and they wouldn't allow the feast of, of, of St. Gregory VII to be celebrated in France because you know he was an emperor deposing you know the the great high medieval pope who 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 established the principle of the papal supremacy over the um over the temporal power and so his feast couldn't be celebrated in france so so the um the the bourbon dynasty becomes extremely absolutist and and also becomes uh um uh highly dominant over the church and this this uh ideology of gallicanism uh, the, the, the sort of national particularity and autonomy to different branches of the church, particularly in France, and the predominance of the temporal power over the spiritual power uh, becomes immensely powerful in France and really, really weakens the church. Um, now, another thing that Council of Trent doesn't doesn't deal with is the question of predestination, and uh, and that is a problem because. Um, in the end, uh, the, the, the Protestant charge against us that we basically believe in salvation through works, uh, which is very firmly anathematized as, as a doctrine, the doctrine of salvation by works, um, in Trent. Uh, but, but you could, depending on how you design your account of predestination, you can kind of sneakily reintroduce salvation through works by the back door. And, um, and this blows up at the end of the 16th century with what's called the De Auxilis controversy. Um, so the uh, Jesuit uh, theologian called Molina is denounced by the Dominicans and various other traditional schools of theology um, for essentially as um, a holding to something like salvation by works. Now, now the Molinists, as they're called, uh, who the followers of him would, would deny that angrily. Um, but it is a very strange theory. So his theory is basically that God, um, God foresees what you're going to do if he gives you grace with a kind of hypothetical foreknowledge. So God sees that if he gives Bob 
lots of grace, then he will do no reasonable good works and he'll just, you know, waste all of all of the graces that heaven sends him and he'll he'll live an immoral life and he might scrape over the line or not, but 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 he's not going to be a saint. Uh, but he sees foresees that Terry, if he gives him grace, will live a very uh, a very admirable life and you know end up a saint terry and so he decides give because of this hypothetical foreknowledge to give grace to terry and not to bob so bob never converts and dies in his sins and um and terry becomes saint terry and uh, and 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 that's why he was predestined so they think well that's not salvation by works because uh, none of these things ever happen as it were, well, they do happen, but they one of them does the, the things that were happened because of giving grace to Terry. But it's not that Terry's works prior to being justified uh, caused him to be justified because he hadn't done the works yet. These are hypothetical works that God foresees that he will perform if he gives him grace. Now, um, uh, this is nonsense. I mean, uh, a terrible nonsense for a number of reasons. One is that basically it's just a sneaky way of reintroducing Pelagianism. I'm going to get assassinated by Jesuits now. But anyway, uh, one 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 of the uh, one is because it's just a sneaky way of reintroducing Pelagianism. The other is because it, it it's it's pagan. Because I mean, like God doesn't learn things off creatures, right? He doesn't. Uh, so I either it's pagan because um, because God is basically passively receiving knowledge as to what Terry is going to hypothetically do in the future. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Let's run the Terry scenario through the God computer and see what will happen. Oh, that's good. We'll go for that one. Beep. Right. That is completely pagan conception of God. People do things, including things they do freely, because God causes them to do them in his omnipotence. So he knows everything that's going to happen, past, present and future, outside time, because he causes all the things that are going to happen. Right. And that doesn't conflict with freedom because... It doesn't because he's omnipotent and he can cause people to do things freely. Um, but so so either it just implies an, a deist conception of God, which would mean basically that God is Zeus, just a kind of lonely Zeus who doesn't have any other Olympians to hang around with. Um, uh, or that you, you could say, well, well, he knows exactly what's going to happen in these different hypothetical scenarios because the uh, and they basically do say this as well, the Molinists, um, that um uh, that uh, because the circuit he designs the circumstances such that you freely choose all the things that he intends you to freely choose. So God's will is sovereignly executed, even though you're free, because he cleverly, you know, says pick a card, any card, and you always pick the card he wants you to pick because he cleverly used special circumstances to call it. But I mean, like, okay, great. So either we lose free will completely and become machines, or God becomes Zeus, or both. Brilliant. Thanks. Jesuits um, and uh, so obviously the other traditional religious orders are furious about this and they say this is nonsense and would more or less kind of make the Protestants right in their slurs against us in fact worse than make them right because we'd be pagans as well as Pelagians um, and uh, this causes a huge row and and the sort of leader of the opposition to modernism is, is Domingo Banez OP who's a Dominican great Dominican theologian and the spiritual director of St. Uh, Teresa of Avila um, and um, this huge row kicks off and the papacy is very uncomfortable with this because uh, the the Jesuits are the poster children of the Counter-Reformation. So, so in the Jesuits' prestige is very strongly um, kind of tied up with this. And uh, so they... Um, so they uh, they try and kick it into a committee into the long grass. So they call this committee called the De Auxilis Commission, the, the the Commission on Helps, meaning on how it is that God, by His assistance, brings about our salvation, and um, and it meets in Rome. It's, it's summoned by Clement Pope Clement VIII, 
and it finally concludes, well, it doesn't conclude, but it, it ends with it, um, under Paul V. And basically the commission keeps coming back to the Pope and saying, yeah, the Jesuit position is, is terrible and you've got to condemn it. And the Pope's like, oh, no, but what am I going to do? But they're on all the posters, and oh, dear. Um, and um, uh, so he's really, really worried, doesn't know what to do about this. Um, and he says, can you think about it a bit longer? And they're like, well, we don't really need to think about it. No, 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 think about it a bit longer. So they go and think about it longer, and they always come back with the same answer. And he kind of adds more people who he thinks are a bit more reasonable onto the commission, but it still always comes back with the same answer. And so the Popes are like, oh, no, 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 what are we going to do? Um, and... Um, and so eventually, uh, Paul V decides to suspend the commission and not determine the question. And uh, so the commission's final report is, um, is that the there are lots of positions, actually, not just the Dominican position, that, that, are, that are not Pelagian, right? So the different religious orders all have their own different, mostly their own different positions, but they all agree that the Jesuit position is heretical. So for like the Augustinians have a position which has a great name, it gets the prize for the best name, it's called Victorious Delectation, which sounds much better than the, uh, much better than the, the uh, Dominican position, which is probably the true one, uh, which is called Physical Promotion. Physical Promotion sounds like you're pushing somebody off a cliff, um, whereas Victorious Delectation sounds great. But, but, uh, but anyway, um, so the, the commission says, okay, we've looked into the Dominican position and it's definitely fine and there's nothing problem nothing problematic with it doctrinally that's okay no problem and we and, and then they say through gritted teeth and we have not had sufficient time to examine the Jesuit position right so, so they so they never they, they're not allowed to condemn the Jesuit position but they just say they haven't had time to consider it properly and uh, Paul V says right okay so we are going to determine this question it's very important it needs to be determined we can't leave these kind of things lying around there for someone to trip over um it needs to be sorted out um and we will sort it out but just not quite now and that was you know 400 years ago and it still hasn't been sorted out um and uh, he writes to the king of spain uh philip saying dead by now but he writes to his successor um uh look basically it's very frank you can actually read it in the current edition of denzinger the big collection of of uh of, of doctrinal documents. I mean, it's not a definitive statement or anything, it's just a letter to the King of Spain. But he writes to the King of Spain and says, look, I mean, he actually says, I can't determine this question because the, the damage done to the prestige of the losing religious order, mentioning no names, would be so bad uh, at this time that, uh, that it just can't be done. So he actually admits the reason for not determining it. But the problem, there is, and he says, for the time being, the Dominicans are not allowed to call the Jesuits Pelagians, and the Pelagians are not allowed to call the Dominicans Calvinists. And we'll get back to this question soon. Soon. Amen. Soon. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it doesn't. It's never been resolved. Um, and uh, and the result of that is, is a further series of, of disasters because people get very upset about the Jesuit position and they consider it to be inimical to the doctrine of St. Augustine and uh and and what this leads to flourishing because the dominicans are gagged because they're not allowed to they're not allowed to directly denounce the heretics the, the heretics excuse me the, the jesuits as heretics um and uh and and so so instead people with crazy false ideas that really are catholic calvinism uh steal the steal the center stage and this is what leads to the rise of this heresy of jansenism which does enormous damage to the church over over 150 years and 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 the the dutch professor who or fleming who invents it um he uh and it's his kind of 
distorted version of, of what he thinks St. Augustine says. And um, he, he's quite clever about it. He publishes the book in which he lays out his theory posthumously. So he says, we, we submit ourselves to the judgment of the Roman See, he says at the beginning of the book, and then he has it published posthumously so that he never has to retract it because, because he's dead. Um, and, uh, and, and they have endless problems. The Holy See condemns it and the Jesuits are cheering, which of course doesn't help because that, that annoys everybody. Um, and, um, and he says that, uh, and and the, and the Jansenists are always saying, "Well, we we accept the condemnation of the positions that you've condemned, but we don't accept that Jansen actually said them." Um, and so there's all these kind of wriggling around, and eventually, eventually, the Holy See has to define that it has the authority to say that it's condemning propositions in the sense in which a specific person meant them, in order to uh, that that it, that it can actually condemn a dead person's theology. It doesn't. It doesn't just have to. It's not just prudential speculation on his part that the, that the dead person held the, the positions that they're condemning. They can actually say that he did hold them and condemn them as his positions, and you have to accept that they are condemned as his positions. So it's actually quite important because, it, uh, in regard to origin, because you get people who are sneaky originists who are trying to say, oh, well, you know, origin was condemned for positions that were attributed to him, but really, did he really hold them? Yeah, no, he was condemned by name in person and it's been uh, defined now helpfully by the holy see during the Jansenist controversy when the magisterium does that you have to accept that it was the positions of that named person who was condemned that are condemned and not just abstract positions anyway so in the midst of these problems uh, of the sort of the rise of royal absolutism the weakening of the spiritual power the undermining of the church's battle against um, against protestantism by uh, ambiguity over predestination um you have the um, the the uh, there's a final push by the Habsburgs in the 17th century to sort of uh, squish the Reformation. So the Austrian Habsburgs, since the two halves split off, have been um, have been a bit um, negligent. They've not been that interested in pursuing the squishing of Protestantism, and uh, you know they've just been having a good time. And there's one of them is obsessed with astrology, really, and and, and all this kind of sort of stupid stuff. And eventually. Um, this emperor Ferdinand II comes along, who uh, who is much more committed and zealous about the Counter Reformation, and uh, but but during the long, long period of negligence, um, uh, Bohemia particularly, which is the very important because it's the Habsburgs' territory that they gives them a vote in the imperial election, um, and but was always very shaky in regard to its faith because of it, it was the centre of Hussitism. Uh, it goes over completely to Protestantism, more or less. And uh, and when they realise that this hardline Catholic is going to become their king, uh, they they rebel against him. And this triggers what's called the Thirty Years' War, um, from uh, seven, from sixteen eighteen to sixteen forty eight, and it's uh, it's very very brutal. Um, uh, it's it's estimated by some historians that more people in Germany died as a proportion of the German population than actually died in the World Wars. Um, so so it's very unpleasant. But the um, it looks like at various points the Habsburgs are going to win, and they 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 have some very great victories, and they actually get all the way up to the Baltic, and no emperor has been really exercising power on the Baltic uh, for a very long time, and they 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 defeat the king king of Denmark, who's a Lutheran, tries to intervene, and he gets roundly defeated, and the 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 elector of the Palatinate, who's a Protestant, who who tried to usurp the throne of Bohemia, he gets roundly defeated, and his his vote in the imperial election is taken from him. Um, and uh, so it's all looking pretty good. 
But the French decide to intervene uh, first with lots of money and then eventually directly um, militarily to stop the Habsburgs winning the Thirty Years' War because they're, it's the same old story. They're worried that the Habsburgs are going to prevail, Protestantism is going to be destroyed, and that's going to lead to um, lead to the Habsburgs being too powerful. And so in the end, the French succeed in, in destroying the... Uh, the Habsburgs uh, position and the war is essentially, a, it, it's a sort of stalemate, but really it's effectively a defeat um, for the cause of Christendom and a defeat for the Habsburgs. And um, uh, and the um, uh, the Pope at the time, Innocent X, uh, is seized that this is, this is a disaster. The papacy, again, has not been as active as it might have been to support the Habsburgs, because they're also worried that the Habsburgs are going to become too powerful. And this is the same problem that we had during the Council of Trent. Um, but, uh, but, but with the Peace of Westphalia, as it's called, in, uh, in 1648, you, you, it's clear that, that this is disaster and Christendom is now definitively broken. And this principle of cuius regio, eus religio, which was, which was asserted at the Peace of Augsburg, the one that, that Charles V abdicated in grief over, um, that who is the ruler, he gets to choose the religion. That is reasserted again at the Peace of Westphalia. And... Um, uh, and, and it's a disaster because it undoes what happened when Christendom in the full-blooded sense was founded by the crowning of Charlemagne, which was essentially a statement that that ultimately your, your membership of the Catholic Church and your communion with the See of Rome determines whether you rightfully exercise political power or not. Uh, that principle is destroyed by the principle curious regio es religio. Instead, it's like which religion you're allowed to adhere to is determined by who your temporal ruler is, which is an abominable principle. And it's, it's reasserted by Westphalia. Innocent X famously describes the Peace of Westphalia as null, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, empty of meaning and effect for all time. Um, so yeah, he, he doesn't think it's a good thing. Um, and uh, so, and the French emerge as the um, as the most powerful state in Europe as a result of the crippling of the Habsburgs, and um, and the Habsburgs. Because uh, the Habsburgs acquired most of their territories through cleverly marrying various people, and in order to prevent themselves losing the territories by the same way, the Habsburgs have obsessively only married their own cousins now, for a very very long time. Uh, you know, as we saw with this problem with Philip II refusing to allow Clara Eugenia to marry uh, a prince of Lorraine, and instead saying he has to she has to marry her cousin from Austria, and so they've been marrying their cousins from Austria like no business um, all the way through, and so eventually the kings of Spain uh, are sort of all they can do is dribble really. They're, they're not really... Um, the last Habsburg king of Spain, Charles II, I think he has half the number of great-grandparents he should have had because uh, his relatives, his parents are more closely related to each other than if they've been brother and sister. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so it's, as a result, he can't reproduce because his equipment is doesn't work um and, uh, and the um so so the so the uh so the Habsburg not only are the Habsburgs crippled by the 30 years war um but they they lose Spain at the end of the century so that really does so so from that emerges the kind of horrible uh king worshipping royal absolutism of Louis XIV's France um as the dominant power in Europe and um and a kind of general cynicism 
And so Protestantism thereby yields its bitter fruit, which is by breaking Christendom and breaking the principle that divine revelation is the ultimate principle of public policy and public law as guaranteed by the infallible magisterium of the church. That's all broken. It's, it's no longer the principle of law in Protestant countries, but it's also no longer the principle of law in Christendom as a whole because of the cuius regio es religio principle and what they call the, the Westphalian settlement, which is that effectively um, uh, sovereign powers are immune to intervention by other sovereign powers on the grounds of their divergence from the divine and, and natural law, right? So that's basically broken Christendom. And, and what that does is, is it makes divine revelation absurd because why would God reveal things uh, to the human race, which it's then impossible to know what they are. So he gives you a book, but nobody knows what the book means, and there's nobody supplied to tell you what the book means. And so consequently, it's... And so from the uh, the egg of the Reformation is hatched, the uh, the, the viper of the Enlightenment, uh, the so-called Enlightenment, no doubt after Lucifer, it's named after Lucifer, the Enlightenment, but uh, uh, the light bearer. Um, and uh, but the, uh, so, so the, the purpose of the Enlightenment is to eliminate, it's a movement to eliminate divine revelation as a principle of public policy and public law, so secularize the 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 Western culture, Western um, intellectual life, and Western law and politics, and anything about this, and uh, and and the the uh, the Jesuits who had kind of who'd been a bit very helpful in some respects and unhelpful in others, as we've discussed in, in fighting the counter-reformation, because they're a very fanatically pro-papal international order, um, uh, they become the big targets of the uh, of the, the adherents of the Enlightenment, and they eventually manage to get them kicked out of all the different countries by what are called the Enlightened despots. So the various rulers of the, of including the Catholic countries, exercise unlimited state power because of the triumph of these principles of regalism that result from the from the Thirty Years' War and the French Wars of Religion, um, and um, and they're able to, and they're offended by the Jesuits, and they're spurred on because the Jesuits aim to um, to be preeminent in all sorts of different intellectual arenas, not just theology and philosophy. And so they they their embarrassment and annoyance to the to the uh, followers of the Enlightenment because they um, because they 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 want to try and make Catholicism look anti-intellectual and backward and and all sorts of stuff, but. To me once he said um that if you want to understand the enlightenment he said uh, if you want to understand the enlightenment because he spoke a bit like this he said, the first thing to realize is that the word philosoph because the the um the people like voltaire and, and rousseau and, and montesquieu like to call themselves the philosoph he said the word philosoph is french for journalist uh, and that really does kind of sum it up so it's, it's a very shallow movement intellectually it's not able to engage uh, the Catholic intellect uh, on the actual plane of reasoned argument. Instead, it's a plane of political manoeuvring and insult and attempting to to stop people reading um, uh, the actual the actual arguments of the classic scholastic writers um, just by denigrating that it's monkish superstition that shouldn't even be considered. Anyway, as everybody knows, this all issues in the, uh, the, the disaster of the French Revolution, the viper of the Enlightenment that hatched from the, from the poisoned egg of the Reformation sinks its teeth into the, into the decaying flesh of Christendom and uh, forth its venom in the French Revolution, and, uh, which is uh, the violent overthrow of the uh, of the order of Christendom, 
and um and that that issues in in 10 years of of horrible persecution you know sort of nazi style massacres of faithful catholics by the french the 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 uh, new um anti-christian radical french government and um uh, and eventually this uh, is some um, uh, the, the, the revolution implodes under the weight of its own horribleness and uh, is taken over by a military dictator, Napoleon Bonaparte. And Bonaparte now wants to, um, he wants to uh, end the persecution of the church because he thinks that uh, he needs to stabilise his regime um, uh, by getting the support of the people who have been alienated by the French Revolution. And so he decides to go and do a deal with the Pope. Uh, Pius VII, who only just manages to get elected because the, the French government has been plotting to destroy the papacy. They abduct uh, Pope Pius VI and drag him off to France. And they've got this very complicated, rather clever plan to, to get to announce extra cardinals have been appointed uh, suspiciously um, pro-French, pro-Enlightenment cardinals for, by the imprisoned Pius VI. No one was going to believe that. And then they were going to announce that Pius VI was dead when he wasn't really dead and have a fake conclave and allow there to be a minority um, conclave of the real cardinals to elect a rival pope. And then after they'd appointed new cardinals and slung condemnations at each other, they would then announce that Pius VI was actually still alive in the French dungeons and therefore nobody knew who the real pope was and who the real cardinals were. And so that when Pius VI actually did die, no one would know who had the right to elect the pope and that would destroy the papacy forever. That was their plan. But it didn't work because they were so nasty to Pius VI that he just died of, of ill treatment before they, they could set the plan into effect. And then enough cardinals managed to gather in Venice which was occupied by the Austrians at this point, uh, to be able to elect a new pope. And they elect this Benedictine guy as um, Pius VII. And he's keen to end the persecution, so he tries to, um, he tries to do a deal with uh, Napoleon. And this deal is, is eventually concluded in 1801. It's called the Concordat, and it ends the persecution in France. Um, but uh, and it's not it's not a great deal. Uh, it doesn't allow religious orders back into France. They've all been dissolved and dispelled, um, and uh, it it doesn't restore all the stolen lands of the French Church that have been lost during the French Revolution. It turns the clergy into the salaried officials of the French state, and it allows the 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 uh, Napoleon's government to effectively uh, nominate. The bishops but they still have to be confirmed by rome they have to be in communion with rome so i mean it's it's bad but it's um and it says that the at this point napoleon hasn't hasn't made himself emperor yet he's he's called the first consul and it says some um, it says that uh that the religion of the consuls is catholicism so that's all right but it states it as a kind of matter of fact rather than a matter of law and um, the evil Talleyrand, the unbelieving apostate bishop of Autun, who is this kind of slimy diplomat politician who's always surviving the wreckage of all the different regimes and driving forward uh, um, a nasty enlightenment agenda through each one of them. He's, he's uh, involved in the negotiations and uh, he um, manages to... Um, ensure that contrary to the wishes of the Pope, the, the Concordat does not say that Catholicism is true or that it is the religion of France. Instead, it says that it's the religion of the great majority of the French people. And so this is, this is a big step back 
from again so we've already lost the principle that the spiritual power establishes the temporal power and judges it when it is not good the principle that was established by the coronation of Charlemagne in 800 um, and now we've lost the principle that the temporal power itself should be Catholic instead we so that was the principle which was established in in 380 by the Emperor Theodosius and that's lost by the Concordat um, and we revert just to the period between Constantine and Theodosius um, which was that, 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 that as it happens the rulers are Catholic and, and, and that there is no persecution of the church within the civil order but the civil order itself isn't formally Catholic anymore under the um, under the Concordat and of course the popes eventually fall out with Napoleon he, he overstretches himself tries to invade the papal states ditches his wife without a, without a declaration of nullity and all that kind of stuff and um, but in the end he is um, he is defeated, and uh, Pius the Seventh gives refuge to Napoleon's relatives in the Papal State very generously, despite having been held in house arrest by Napoleon himself for a number of years. Prior to that point, uh, the Bonapartes are not the most popular family in Europe by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and the Pope is very generous to them and 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 looks after them. But in 1815. Um, 1814 to 1815, um, uh, it looks like the French Revolution has been defeated. So there's, and of course, the, how ser how dangerous and bad the Enlightenment was and how really how bad Protestantism is to some extent uh, as the inevitable cause of the Enlightenment has, has started to sink home to a lot of people. There's a famous uh, Anglo-Irish author, um, Edmund Burke, who writes this incredibly prophetic book called Reflections on the Revolution in France very early on during the French Revolution when people in England still think it's a pretty good thing. And he writes, says, this is not a good thing. This is a very, very, very bad thing. And this is what's going to happen. There's going to be horrible massacres and brutal violence. and The king's going to end up dead and there's going to be a military. So he basically predicts everything that's going to happen. So he's like seen as a terrifying prophet by the time all the things that he predicted happen. But he says... Um, he says, as as the revolution develops, he he already he, there's a wonderful passage in Reflections on the Revolution in France in which he describes the Enlightenment and how it was essentially a conspiracy to overthrow the Christian religion. Uh, he says that a conspiracy to overthrow the Christian religion, um, and and later on, as as things are developing as he predicted, uh, he he says some. Um, uh, he says, surely in, in, in his uh, later writings against Napoleon, he says, uh, well, Bonaparte as he is then, because um, Burke's dead by the time he becomes emperor. Um, uh, he says, surely the most perfect Protestant is he who protests against the entire Christian religion. So even though Burke is officially an Anglican, although there's some suggestion that he probably never believed Anglicanism was true, was secretly a Catholic, but um, whether that's the, were the case or not. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, Pius VI, before he was abducted by the French, wrote a letter of thanks to uh, Edmund Burke for having written Reflections on the Revolution in France. Um, uh, so, um, uh, yes, um, so he, uh, so, so Burke sees that, you know, the Enlightenment is a conspiracy to destroy the Christian religion and Protestantism is the inevitable cause of the Enlightenment. Um, and he, be he gets accused of being crypto-Catholic a lot in satirical cartoons at the time. He's always depicted as a Jesuit um, uh, by his enemies. Um, so in uh, 1815, 18, 1814, 1815, all the, 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 the monarchs of Europe, having defeated the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Empire, they gather in Vienna um, and they uh, hold what's called the Congress of Vienna, 
which is intended to work out, so what are we going to do now, chaps? We've had like 25 years almost of, of continuous war, and there's a massive ideological conflict, and now we've put the Bourbons back on the throne of France, um, and the, the revolution is extinguished. And the degree to which all the revolutionary uh, forces seem to be on the back foot is, is, is uh, in 1814 is often underestimated because, of course, in, in August 1814, um, uh, Washington, D.C. is reoccupied by Britain and the White House is burnt down. I don't know if you're aware of this, um, but, uh, but the uh, so 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 because uh, um, the U.S. tried to invade Canada Um that's at least our account, the British account of how the War of eighteen twelve kicked off, um, and uh, and and eventually the the British forces drove the U.S. forces back out of Canada and carried on down into the U.S. and and took Washington and burnt the White House and the Capitol to the ground, um, uh, and in fact apparently the White House is now white because it's whitewashed over the scorch marks from from uh, the sack of Washington D.C. and um, so I mean it looks in eighteen fourteen as if all this revolutionary stuff is 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 over, chat. And uh, so, but that several disaster and the Austrians, the Habsburgs are very powerful. They end up again, mostly through clever maneuvering rather than lots of military victories. They end up in control of very large areas of Europe. They're forced to abdicate. However, the, the Emperor Francis II is forced to abdicate as Holy Roman Emperor while Napoleon is, is in his pomp in 1806. And he, before doing that, he uses his, his authority as emperor, whether this is legal or not is, is unclear, but he uses his authority as emperor to make himself hereditary emperor of Austria. So he gets to carry on being an emperor, if he, even if he has to give up being Holy Roman Emperor. So he makes himself the emperor, um, uh, <coughs> Francis I, Austria, um, uh, while abdicating as the emperor Francis II of the Romans. Um, and uh, so the Holy Roman Empire is kind of gone and the papal states have been annexed by France, and uh, and all the old medieval republics have been swept away by the French revolutionaries during their wars because they didn't like them because that reminded people that in fact um, you didn't have to be uh, believe in the divine right of kings to be a Catholic. So anyway, but the the Republic of, of of Venice and any any others that might have survived are got rid of by the French revolutionaries. Um, so, the, so the, the 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 kings and emperors of different parts of Europe they gather there at some uh, uh, in Vienna and they 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 try to recreate well they they try to create what I would call a kind of Disneyland Christendom. So basically, they they do restore the papal states to the great gratification of Pius the Seventh, um, but they do not restore any of the other ecclesiastical states, the ones the areas that were ruled by bishops. I think possibly apart from Salzburg, which remained inside the Habsburg dominions, um, uh, and they don't—they um, don't restore any of the old medieval republics. Um, what they do is they make everything be a hereditary monarchy across the board. So it's definitely a kind of pursuit of the divine right of kings kind of theory. Uh, but they don't provide. But there's no the rationale of of Christendom is gone, right? There's, because obviously a lot of these people are not Catholics. So, so whereas previously you had a structure which was Catholic in origin, even though some of the areas of it had fallen into schism or heresy, they were still originally Catholic polities. Whereas now you're recreating these polities by an agreement between Catholic powers and non-Catholic powers. So the 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 main sponsors in mainland Europe of, of the agreement are the King of Prussia, who's a Protestant. Uh, he's a successor of, of, of Albert of... Albert of um, uh, Brandenburg, 
um, well, he's, yeah, it's confusing, but the, the dodgy bishop, you remember, he belonged to the same dynasty, the Hohenzollern dynasty, and, and his cousin, who was the head of the Teutonic Knights, had, had apostatized and created this state of Prussia. So it's actually the original Protestant state. So the King of Prussia uh, is one of the sponsors, the Emperor of Austria, who's Catholic, obviously, and the Russian Emperor, Alexander I, they, who's, who's a schismatic, um, uh, they are the sponsors of, um, of, of this deal. So it's not really, it's an, it's an ecumenical conservative deal. It's no longer a, a, a traditional Catholic uh, recreation of Christendom. And as a result, it doesn't have any real logic that holds it together. So the, the, the Habsburgs are left ruling northern Italy, which they had done for a very long time. But they make up this Disneyland kingdom that, that never never existed called the Kingdom of Lombardy Venetia. Uh, I mean, it just sounds fake. Uh, which So Venetia is the former Republic of Venice, which the Habsburgs have annexed and which isn't restored. And Lombardy is, is, is the area around Milan, which they had ruled for a long time anyway. But they turn it into this new kingdom instead of the old king, medieval kingdom of Italy, which was based at Milan, which was always a bit nominal, but which the Habsburgs held as Holy Roman Emperors. They create this fake kingdom. Um, and of course, the Italians are not very happy about that, you know, because they're like, well, you know, why do we get through? OK, I can understand why we're ruled by the Habsburgs if they're the Roman emperors. OK, that makes sense. But why are we ruled by the hereditary emperor of Austria? I mean, what have we got to do with Austria? Why, and why are we ruled? Uh, or, or OK, so that's fine because he's got a title, King of Lombardy, Venetia. And you're like, OK, but where's that come from? That's completely made up. So so the, so, so the, the, the Italians are not very happy about that. And um, and somebody says to the Austrian, uh, too clever by half, Austrian Chancellor, uh, he is very clever, but he's he's so clever that he for, sometimes you know is forgets that he's fallible. Um, uh, Metternich uh, at the uh, at the um, uh, at the Congress of Vienna said, "What about Italy?" And Metternich supposed to have said, "Italy, a geographical expression." Um, and uh, so so he's uh, he's like, "Yeah, whatever." Um, and uh, we've made up our brand new plastic con- kingdom of Lombardy Venetia, and that's how we're going to deal with that. So all the um, all, all the other parts of Italy are, are p- portioned out between various dynasties. Um, uh, the old Austrian Netherlands, which was the the, the Catholic bit of, of the old Duchy of Burgundy that had had, had not gone over to the Protestant revolts because the Protestants in, in the Netherlands had revolted against the Habsburgs in the 16th and 17th centuries, and they'd held on to the southern bit and lost the northern bit. So what we now call the Netherlands um, is the northern bit that revolted. and um, But it's reunited by the Congress of Vienna with the southern bit that had belonged to the Habsburgs since then, um, and uh, and it's called the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, and it's put under the dynasty, the House of Orange Nassau, which had led the original revolt and had been the Stadtholders, so sort of the, the kind of Republican but really monarchical rulers of the, of the United Provinces in the Netherlands before the, before the revolution. Uh, they are now made the, you know, the kings of the United Provinces in the Netherlands, um, and they rule what is now the Netherlands and Belgium, but then it's called the United Provinces, uh, the, sorry, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. And the southern uh, southern Netherlanders, the Belgians, as they subsequently called, um, are not happy about this, and they're very restless. So this is another sign of the kind of that this kind of Disneyland Christendom arrangement is not going to work. And uh, and then there's the problem of Germany, the biggest problem of all. So so that so they, they have to consider the question of whether to restore the Holy Roman Empire. But the problem is it's a bit weird for. 
Uh, on the one, it's a bit weird for a bunch of Protestants and Orthodox to get together with the Catholics to restore the Holy Roman Empire, which is an intrinsically Catholic structure. So, okay, the Protestants have been working within that structure and occasionally trying to take it over and not succeeding. Uh, but but the idea of the Protestants create, recreating the Holy Roman Empire really doesn't make any sense. Also, Metternich is thinking, well, eh, I don't know if we really want the Holy Roman Empire recreated because it's elective. And it's a pain trying to get hold of the votes necessary to be for make sure a Habsburg is elected each time. And in fact, that does go wrong in the 18th century um, uh, in the transition when when the Habsburg, last Habsburg male dies and his daughter marries the Duke of Lorraine. As we mentioned, uh, there's, there's this war of Austrian succession and, and a non-Habsburg gets elected emperor. Um, and so um, for a little bit, then the Habsburgs get it back. But the... Um, so but that was a bit scary and the Habsburgs don't want to have to face that prospect again. And so they decide that they're actually happier with their hereditary imperial made up title of emperors of Austria. Um, it's, it's safer. And so they don't get the uh, Holy Roman Empire recreated. So the key kind of structural elements of Christendom are not being put back into place. And, um, and so instead they create this German confederation, which the Austrian emperor will be the president of. But it isn't a state, um, so so there isn't a, there isn't a Germany. There's a confederation of the German states, which is presided over by the Austrian emperor, and um, and you'd think that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. You know, everyone can live in their own little Ruritanian German state and be happy and eat their sausages and sing their songs and drink their beer and and and, and what's the problem? Um, but the problem is because the traditional account of the origin of civil authority in Christendom has been has gone away. Right, there's no emperor, there's no supremacy of the spiritual power of the temporal power, um, uh, and the Enlightenment has has, and even before the Enlightenment, there's this idea of contractualist origin of 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 authority that it's because everybody uh, agrees that this this ruler rules over them, that, that that which is kind of this substitute for the divine right of kings, which is an insufficiently plausible theory to really survive very long. Um, uh, and so, but that's the problem with contractual, many, many, many problems with contractualist theories, not least that they always lead to horrendous massacring tyrannies. Um, but the, um, but the, but one of the, uh, one of the problems is that, well, who, who belongs to the contract, right? Who is, um, who's supposed to, um, uh, who decides what, what if one part of your country decides that it, it belongs to a different contract? And uh, or if I decide that I'm not in the contract while I rob this bank and then I'll opt back in again afterwards when I've got my loot, property will become sacred again once I own it. Um, and uh, I mean, so, so it doesn't, doesn't so, so you need a kind of hyper-realism about nations in order to get contractualism to work. Uh, and and so, so you've got to say that there's kind of, the, there's just the, 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 the real fundamental units of human society are these nations and they're sort of almost platonic realities that that, that have an absolute existence and, and the fact that you are French or are German means that you belong to this nation and therefore that's the contract that you belong to and so so the, the logic of uh, the logic of, of the French Enlightenment um, actually leads to ultimately something rather like Nazism. Uh, there's um, uh, there's a, a Jewish author Hannah Arendt I wrote this book called The Origins of Totalitarianism. She has some interesting observations on this point. Um, uh, and, and, the, and in fact, uh, you, you see the fact that they, they, that they, that the kind of ultra left 
craziness and the ultra right craziness uh, comes. Uh, they're really just the the horrible twins of the same of the same parents. You can see that in the French Revolution. Um, when they all swear their tennis court oath and they're all doing this salute this nazi salute thing which is actually the nazis actually get it from this and it's it's um it would take a bit long to explain it all goes back to this weird painting the oath of the horatii by jacques louis david this famous uh, um painter during the french revolutionary period um but it's all part of this kind of weird hyper nationalist idea and this idea of the general will this kind of weird collective will of of of, of the uh, of the con contracted nation uh, that, that that rousseau has anyway so nationalism is 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 the new christianity as it were in the 19th century it's the new basis for um for civil legitimacy and uh, and and the only way of avoiding that and its horrible consequences would have been to revert to the old christianity and restore christendom properly but instead they decide to have plastic christendom at the congress of vienna and so and it's not going to last when the floods come so uh but the popes um uh, initially uh when uh, Pius VII struck his deal with um, uh, Napoleon, um, it looked as if what they were going to try and do is, is try and detoxify republicanism. They were going to try and, 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 and get rid of the, the nasty enlightenment parts of it and see whether or not, as, as the church as such, is not into Disneyland Christendom and is is as is, is is as happy with republican forms of government as she is with royal forms of government, so long as you just don't think that either of them is compulsory. Um, so so and it looked like that because uh, Pius the Seventh goes to Paris and 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 anoints Napoleon at his coronation, albeit ominously, Napoleon places the crown on his own head, which isn't a good sign. Um, but um, but. Uh, um, uh, so it looks like Pius VII is, is going to try and find a way of detoxifying republicanism, uh, you know, having a, 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 a more, a more um, acceptable Catholic account of republicanism instead of uh, the nasty Enlightenment uh, form of republicanism. Um, but of course, that 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 blow, and in fact, Pius the um, Pius the Seventh, famously, when he was just a bishop before he was uh, pope, he'd given a sermon about the, the the theoretical compatibility of republicanism with Catholicism. She famously says, um, uh, "A quite ordinary virtue will suffice to preserve and to maintain other forms of government. Ours requires something more. Strive to attain the full height of virtue, and you will be true Democrats." fulfill faithfully the precepts of the gospel and you will be the joy of the republic so it's a very very famous statement by um by uh Pius the seventh but in the end that never works out because napoleon actually quite wants to be a hereditary monarch of france and puts all of his brothers and sisters on the thrones of various different different kingdoms that he creates around europe and so he makes a farce of the whole idea because he's not really being very republican himself anyway um and then he's a terrible tyrant and he tries to annex the papal states and he sets aside his wife and all this kind of stuff and so he ends up being deposed and so the whole kind of project of trying to reconcile catholicism with um with uh, some kind of non-enlightenment republicanism disappears it would have been very difficult anyway but it, it doesn't happen 
So instead, the, the papacy gets stuck with Disneyland Christendom. And, and the papacy is kind of like, well, uh, that's not, that's, 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 all, that's all right. They gave us the papal states back. And they're all very conservative because they have to be because um, there's not a lot of rationale for this for this Disneyland Christendom. So just nostalgia. So we're, so they're trying to build a trying to build a a, a, a a geopolitical order based on historically inaccurate nostalgia, essentially. Um, and, the, and the Holy See is like, well, it's what's on the table, and it's a lot better than being massacred by atheist Republicans in the 1790s. So I suppose we'll go with this. And uh, so so from the time of Pius the Seventh. Um, uh, and the Congress of Vienna until the ex the election of Pope uh, Pius the Ninth, the popes are are very much backing the Disneyland Christendom project as the best thing on offer by a long way, um, but it, it is creaky and it is falling apart. The Belgians revolt against the new made up Kingdom of the Netherlands, and uh, and the uh, the French um, the, the, initially the, the the restored King Louis the Eighteenth just tries to tries to pretend nothing happened and just carry on as if he just happened to have inherited the throne from his brother, Louis the 16th. And oh, was there, there was a little bit of unpleasantness, wasn't there? I can't quite remember what happened there. And he tries not to offend the liberals. So the liberals emerge as this kind of party. So the liberals are, now that the enlightenment is as it were over, the people who carry the torch of the enlightenment forward in order to burn everything else down are the liberals. So the liberals are the continuators of the enlightenment. And, um, so they are, France under the Restoration is a kind of, uh, 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 resembles a little bit the sort of English constitution, a sort of more parliamentary monarchy, but with a stronger actually monarchical government, but one that is answerable to a kind of ele elected legislature, albeit elected on a very, very constricted basis. And um, but Louis the Eighteenth is is planning to just pretend this is how things always were and hope that people will forget about the French Revolution. But then he he doesn't have any legitimate children, so he's succeeded by his his brother. These are all brothers of Louis the Sixteenth, who got murdered in the Revolution. Um, uh, Charles the Tenth. Charles the Tenth is a lot more shouty about his conservatism and much more interested in actually undoing the French Revolution. And uh, and he does, and um, he starts to try and make moves to compensate uh, aristocrats who had all their land stolen during the revolution. And that makes a lot of people very nervous because you have this problem that, you know, a lot of land that's been stolen has changed hands many times. And a lot of people in the middle ranks of society um, have their wealth reliant on the, the soundness of their property rights over property that was stolen during the revolution. So that's always a bit dangerous. And, um, and he tries to make things much more Catholic. So he has a full, Louis XVIII never got crowned because the coronation ceremony where you don't put the crown on your own head, but a bishop puts the crown on your head is very much the expression of the primacy of the spiritual. And so, uh, and which is deeply offensive to the liberals. So, um, so Louis XVIII just sort of never gets crowned and just ignores the fact that he hasn't been crowned and hopes no one else will notice because he doesn't want to provoke anybody. But Charles X is like, nope, we're getting crowned in reams with all the proper stuff, proper rubrics, 
um, uh, real coronation, and you know he prostrates himself for the for the litany and all that kind of stuff, and and it's all oh, the liberals are very upset, and he tries to he tries to get a law through making it a capital offence to desecrate the blessed sacrament, which is you know I'm all in favour of that, but the liberals are very very upset about that too, because obviously that's again you know that is clearly making divine revelation a principle of public policy and public law, so he's going full speed in reverse as it were, um, and uh, and eventually they the the um, the uh, liberals uh, arrange a revolution and he's overthrown in uh, 1830 and replaced by his dodgy collaborationist cousin, the Duke of Orléans, who's, who, who, along with his father, had collaborated with the revolution until they realised it was too dangerous and ran away. But they are definitely seen as, as, as you know, the, the revolutionary friendly kings. So you've got, so, so the whole thing's beginning to fall apart. Now, um, uh, but Metternich thinks he can still hold the lid on to a certain degree, um, and uh, and they have this holy alliance. It's called between um, the uh, Russian emperor and the uh, king of Prussia and the Austrian emperor to try and squish uh, counter-revolutionary forces. And uh, but the problem is it's very oppressive because, as I say, there isn't really a theory, there isn't really a coherent theory behind the Vienna settlement. It's just historically slightly inaccurate nostalgia and that isn't a theory and um so so it, it feels very oppressive and people beginning to forget about how bloody awful the french revolution was and starting to get nostalgic for the revolutionary era and so messenix holding the lid on with with more and more more difficulty and he says some um, and when it finally does blow off in 1848 to 1849 and the whole thing falls apart and Metternich is sort of driven off into exile um uh the um he said he'd planned for everything apart from a liberal pope that was the one thing now i think this is slightly unfair because i think his plan wasn't that great in the first place but it's true that a liberal pope didn't help um and uh, so in 1846 um uh, blessed pius the ninth is elected pope and he is what he what Metternich means by a liberal pope. Now, uh, it's probably unfair to call Pius the Ninth a liberal, but he he was um, he was definitely more of he'd been patronised by uh, Pope Pius the Seventh, and he was definitely more of the of the view that there were forces within uh, there were there were elements within. The grievances against the old order, as now caricatured by the Vienna settlement, that were legitimate, even if they were unduly entangled in false philosophy. And he starts to try and reform the papal states uh, to make them, you know, give the laity a larger role, have sort of kind of elections, have a sort of temporal government of the papal states that's distinct from the pontifical government, over which he nevertheless exercises a certain degree of veto power and uh, but he's really playing with fire here because the thing is that it's nice to sit in in your study and imagine a kind of catholic republicanism which isn't entangled with the with the theories of the enlightenment but almost all of the actual republicanism in existence anywhere is actually entirely based on the ideas of the enlightenment and the liberals are kind of like they manipulate Pius the ninth they 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 try and play up 
how they, they, they create a sort of impression of him as an actually liberal pope. He isn't a liberal. He's, he's, a, he's a faithful Catholic who is not very good at politics um, and, and who sees that the Disneyland settlement isn't actually necessary and is, and is worried about the fact that the church could get swept away along with the, 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 the Disneyland Christendom. And so he's trying to disentangle the church from that to a certain degree, but he doesn't, he doesn't realise how difficult that is going to be. And, um, and so mischievously pretending to be uh, admirers of his, uh, liberals uh, promote him as the great liberal pope. And whenever he does something which is perceived as liberal, they go and sort of cheer him outside of his outside the Quirinal Palace in Rome, which is now where the president of Italy lives, but was the, the residence of the pope when the popes ruled, ruled central Italy. And, uh, and, and then when they don't do things he does, they, he does things they don't like, they're deathly silent about it and there's no mention of it at all. So he's being, he's being, he's being engineered and pushed and cheered and, and sort of intimidated, stroke patted on the back into a more and more extreme positions until the entire thing blows up and he he's driven out of Rome. Well, basically, he's, there's a suggestion that Italy could be united in a sort of federal union, and that the Pope could be the president of this federal union. And, and Pius IX is, a, is, a, is an enthusiastic patriot for, um, for Italy. Um, and he likes the idea of Italy being united. Um, and, uh, and, and he likes the idea of the Pope being the president of this federation. Um, and um, but the liberals and the Italian nationalists, what they what they want above all things is to drive the most powerful foreign power out of Italy, which is the Habsburgs, who rule this kingdom of Lombardy, Venetia. And so they're like, "Yay, Pius the Ninth, Bio Nono, we love you, the liberal pope." And he's like, "Well, I'm not actually a liberal." It's drowned out. And uh, and the um, and and Italia, and they're like, and he's like, "Yeah, Italia, let's kill the Austrians." And he's like, "What? Kill the Austrians?" <laughs> and, uh, and so. The, yeah. So, so this, so he's like, no, we can't do that because they're, they're a legitimate government and, and they're Catholics, and they're like, what? And uh, so then, then he's he's he is turned on by these forces that he has rather rashly attempted to tame, and uh, and he is driven out of Rome, and a sort of uh, and, a, and, a, and a Roman Republic, so called, is proclaimed, and he has to run away to the kingdom of uh, kingdom. Naples, King to Sicilies, whatever it's calling itself at this point, um, uh, which is ruled by conservative dynasty, although uh, they're clinging on by their fingernails. And um, and so he um, eventually gets back in. The Austrians, turns out that the Italians' military capacities have declined over the centuries. Um, and the and the Austrians, uh, the Austrians um, uh, defeat them very easily. Um, and uh, and, and uh, the, the, there's been a big revolution in Austria and in Germany at the same time. And the the um, the Austrian emperor, who by this time is is the uh, emperor Ferdinand the First of Austria, confusingly, because the numbering starts again from the beginning, because they're now emperors of Austria instead of Holy Roman emperors. Um, but he um, he is not the sharpest pencil in the box. He's he's not like a great tyrant, although he is uh, he is he's the employer of Metternich, who who's been trying to impose the conservative settlement with with increasing uh, resentment from below. Um, but he's he's apparently a little bit dim and possibly kind of constitutionally dim and not just you know 
you know, didn't read as many books as he should have done when he was at school. He, um, uh, his, his, uh, the, the joke is apparently it's true that his, his only famous utterance was, I am the emperor and I want dumplings because somebody refused to serve him dumplings. And uh, so, so poor old Ferdinand is, 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 is packed off into retirement um, uh, because he's just not up to the job of dealing with, with neo-revolutionary Europe. And uh, his heir, Franz Josef, succeeds him as, uh, as emperor. And Franz Josef lives forever and ever and ever. So Franz Josef dies in, so he becomes emperor in uh, in um, 1849, and uh, and he dies in 1916. So like he's one of the longest reigning uh, rulers in European history, and um, but he he's he's much sharper and more up to the job and uh, and the austrians managed to kind of get a grip on things again with a bit of help from the russians who beat up the hungarians who were rebelling um and uh, and they and they 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 defeat the italians without too much difficulty and uh, and they put the pope back in place in rome and so uh, an extremely chastened pius the ninth no longer at all interested in trying to find common ground with any liberals uh, is restored uh, is restored to um uh, his his position in the papal states but the problem is that in the course of this um uh, the one so there's the, the the what there's there's the in there's the bourbons in southern italy who are ultra conservative but not very competent and then there's the habsburgs in northern italy who are seen as foreign um who who've won on this occasion but they're living on borrowed time because the nationalist beast is not going to be contained so the only not ultra conservative significant dynasty in the italian peninsula uh, is the House of Savoy, who are a very old dynasty, who are the kings of Sardinia and rule Piedmont, the uh, the um, northern uh, nor northwestern part of Italy, and uh, and they start to get the idea that they can kind of ride the tiger themselves. So they think, well, you know, if we if we get seen as the patriotic, genuinely Italian, open to the new ideas dynasty, then we can end up being kings of Italy. So this is their plan, which they are they are treacherously hatching um uh, for the rest of the 19th century um so uh Pius the ninth is highly chastened and uh and, and the people loyal to the true cause of the faith are, are beginning to think right okay the disneyland plan didn't work we need an actually coherent integrated philosophy of what society and politics and international relations should look like that's actually based on catholicism that actually has some kind of some kind of coherence so that we can start you know we can present a catholic theory that's sustainable and can intellectually convict people that isn't just historically inaccurate nostalgia um as an alternative to the horrendous spirit of the age which is going to sweep us all away so um and this has been impeded for many centuries because of the rivalry between the different religious orders. Um, uh, the, the same forces that prevented um, the, uh, the, the same forces that prevented the um, a condemnation of Molinism um, and uh, prevented the destruction of the Via Moderna, the nominalist movement in the Middle Ages, uh, the, the rivalries between the different religious orders have prevented the development of, of, of Catholic intellectual life to uh, defeat um, uh, the intellectual forces of modernity, because because Catholic intellectual life is a perpetual armed standoff between uh, the um, between the uh, different theological schools sponsored by the different religious orders. Um, so uh, in uh, eighteen forty nine, the um, 
Bishop of Spoleto, um, uh, who is uh, who is um, uh, uh, Pecci, who is uh, later going to become Leo the Thirteenth, uh, in a uh, in a general um, in a in a in a local gathering of bishops and clerics, uh, suggests to Pius the Ninth that what we need is some kind of syllabus, which lays out uh, a clear vision of um, of uh, of what the um, of what the Catholic response to the new things really is, and, and what the Catholic view of society is, um, and this is followed up by an Italian aristocrat um, uh, who who writes a book suggesting that defining the Immaculate Conception and uh, tying to that uh, the syllabus of the type that um, the future Leo XIII has proposed uh, would also provide a uh, a, a, a a launch point from which to make an intellectually coherent counterblast to the forces of liberalism, and um, and and the uh, the definition of the immaculate conception is symbolically important for two reasons. One is that the immaculate conception is one of those questions which has not been settled because of rivalry between the schools. So the Dominicans don't don't want it to be defined because uh, St Thomas denies it in the Summa, and therefore it will diminish the prestige of St Thomas. Um, and the Franciscans are really keen for it to be defined because Scotus taught it, and and it will diminish the prestige of Saint Thomas. <laughs> and uh, and the um, uh, but also because it um, it represents uh, it represents an assertion of the reality of original sin. Okay, so to say that there is one exception implies that there aren't any more exceptions, and original sin, which is a key uh, revealed truth. Uh, necessary to um, understanding the true nature of of human social organization in in our world uh, would be being strongly asserted but in a positive way right because the actual dogma itself is about the fact that our lady um has been preserved from that uh and and you know because this romanticism this this kind of movement of nostalgia um, is actually strengthening the position of the church culturally at this time. Even Protestants, you know, see this to some extent. Um, Lord Tennyson, the poet, famously refers to Our Lady as our tainted nature's solitary boast. Uh, but he wasn't a Catholic, but he was very keen on the Middle Ages. Um, and then there's a third advantage to defining the Immaculate Conception um, and tying the, the presentation of the Catholic view of, um, of society and politics and international relations to it, um, which is that if the Pope on his own bat solemnly defines the Immaculate Conception, then he's making a very um, aggressive and grand assertion of the uh, infallible teaching authority of the Holy See, which is one of the things that the Gallicans deny. And which is a key part of the coherence of Christendom, the fact that there is a certain reliable, infallible rule of faith uh, by which you can know the meaning of divine revelation, which is necessary for if divine revelation is going to be a principle of public policy and public law. And of course, that it's necessary not just for popes, but for councils, because uh, although people who are opposed to papal infallibility might hold that councils are infallible, but popes aren't. Uh, in fact, that becomes meaningless, as the Orthodox have shown, because without uh, the final uh, say of the Pope, it's impossible to put together an ecumenical council that anyone can absolutely definitely be sure is really a valid ecumenical council, because there's always some reason why you can claim that it's not legitimate.
right? Um, uh, every single heretical group that got condemned at every single council has some account of why that council didn't count, and therefore they're just adhering to the doctrine of the councils that came before that, which is the true ancient Catholic faith. They all have this thing. I mean, even I think if I remember rightly, the 39 articles of religion, the Anglican uh, supposed beliefs of the Anglicans, although <laughs> good luck finding an Anglican who actually believes any of them. But um, but the um, uh, but if I remember rightly, it contains like instructions for how to call an ecumenical council that would be a real ecumenical council, despite the fact that the Anglicans still wouldn't agree that it was definitive or bound them. But of course, they want to claim that they really, if only there was a real council, everything would be all right. And it's this impossible to to fulfill rules about how every single Christian ruler has to agree to summon the council, all this kind of stuff. And they're designed to make it impossible to call a council. So they can claim that they represent the kind of conciliarist, anti-papal tyranny tradition, which they all do. You know, Luther appealed to a council totally disingenuously because he didn't believe councils were really binding. So anyway, so papal infallibility is, is as important in a way uh, for making councils possible as it is for making popes capable of teaching infallibly. Um, but the, the the Gallicans in France, one of their key uh, key um, claims had been under Louis XIV, they issued these four Gallican articles. And one of them was that the definitive judgments of the Holy See on uh, doctrinal matters only become truly definitive when they are received by the whole church. But of course, this is this is completely subjective and has all the problems I just described. Um, and so it's just a way of making it, we'll agree to them if we feel like it, if we agree with them, we'll agree, we'll agree to them. And if we don't, then then sorry, they're good. Um, uh, so, so, so papal infallibility is very important for the coherence of the ecumenical councils, as well as for the coherence of the papal teaching authority. So by, um, by solemnly defining in an aggressively infallible way the Immaculate Conception, which he finally does in the bull in a fabulous Deus in uh, 1854, um, uh, Pius IX is strongly asserting the power of the Pope to act infallibly independently of a council or anybody else. And he's done it in a way that uh, ties it to the to Our Lady, so so it was, which is a little sneaky, but is quite clever. Um, so basically all over the world, you know, the pious love our blessed mother with, with, you know, great fiery devotion. And now anyone who denies papal infallibility is attacking the, the, the certainty of the immaculate conception. So it's quite a clever, clever way of getting, uh, of, of, you know, saying, saying, you know, uh, if you're attacking me, then our lady gets it as well. Are you going to attack our lady? Um, uh, and uh, so it's quite clever. However, he doesn't uh, in the end, he probably decides that tacking on a syllabus of modern errors actually to the definition of the immaculate conception is a little bit too tacky. Um, uh, so, so he decides that he's not actually going to do that. Um, but he's still very much working on the idea and um and uh, and and there's this huge uh, that's going on at the same time a huge revival in scholasticism so people have realized whereas in the 18th century you had a lot of of and the early 19th century you have a lot of eclecticism among catholics they basically just sort of they adhere to the catholic faith on a theological level but when it comes to philosophy they they're just like decide they pick something that they like from the spirit of the age and go with that so the coherence of the of, of catholicism intellectually has been greatly undermined um, by this eclecticism and by the uh, the perpetual mexican standoff in the catholic schools but uh, in the wake of the revolution and the the liberal resurgence uh, um, in the early 19th century people have started to realize that you know you know 
you know, scholasticism is not a optional extra to Catholicism. Uh, you know, unless there is a perennial philosophy, unless there is a there are basic uh, rational categories uh, which are objectively absolutely true at all times and all places and have been known at least since the death of the last apostle. So it's going to have to be ancient Greek philosophy in its developed form, i.e. scholasticism. Um, unless that is true, then Catholicism is completely incoherent because the meaning of the doctrines that the church teaches is just going to change depending on whether you're whether you're a Cartesian or a Kantian or a Hegelian or Lord knows what else. So basically, the, and this is now a huge problem in, 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 at the moment, right, is and for many decades, is this idea that you've got Catholic divine revelation and theology, and then you've got the philosophy fitting, which you screw into, uh, in, but that's optional. So, you know, I'm a Hegelian Catholic, but, you know, you could unscrew the Hegelianism uh, and, and screw in Cartesianism or Kantianism instead. This does not make any sense. If that were true, divine revelation would be ridiculous because what divine revelation actually meant would be determined by the optional philosophical fitting that you screwed in um and so um so a lot of people are realizing this and they're realizing that um uh they're realizing that, that it's going to have to be scholasticism there has to be a massive revival of scholasticism and if that revival is going to be coherent and isn't just going to be a return to the perpetual mexican standoff it's going to have to be a revival of thomism right because everybody grudgingly admits and some people enthusiastically admit that st thomas is the greatest of the scholastics um uh and um and so they're going to, you know, the Franciscans have been given their the definition of the Immaculate Conception. So now, thanks, that's your that's your your special prize, Scotus. You can now go home and leave the stage to the angelic and universal Doctor, um, and uh, slap on the wrist for having not agreed with the Immaculate Conception, at least in the Summa. Uh, he may have he did agree with it originally, and then he, he denied it in the Summa. He may have gone back to it before the end of his life, but this is disputed. But anyway, um, so uh, so Thomas now had a slap on his wrist. Um, uh, uh, Scotus has given a special badge for having got it right about the Immaculate Conception, if not about anything else, um, and, uh, and he can uh, he can go home. And uh, so, and, and in fact, Pecci, uh, um, he is a um, he is a, a big mover and shaker behind this movement, right? The future Leo the Thirteenth and his brother, who's a very enthusiastic Thomist, and um, uh, and he sets up in his diocese a, a college. Uh, for study a sort of institute for studying Thomism and promoting it and uh, but this also meets great resistance from within the ranks of Catholics because in Germany has become very very pleased about its own academic life and its academic life is very very modeled on a kind of universal application of the method of the natural sciences to each and all areas of human knowledge. So they, so for them, theology is all about lots of textual scholarship and uh, and 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 studying uh, of history. And they see now while and there is a kind of a slightly distorted version of scholasticism, which where you just spend your whole time syllogizing in a, in a in a sort of quiet room on your own and you don't ever bother reading the fathers. Now, of course, this isn't uh, isn't legit, but uh, neither is the kind of um, the kind of uh, theology reduced to to historicist textual criticism, which uh, these German liberals are keen on as well. So, uh, and the um, so the so the neo-scholastic revival. One of the great figures of this is this guy Kleutgen, Joseph Kleutgen, um, who's a German Jesuit. 
um, and he writes these these books about about the the true nature of philosophy and theology uh, as truly uh, there's the philosophy of former times and the theology of former times which he, he writes which become very important texts and he becomes very influential but there's another german who is his great opponent ignaz von dollinger who is um who, who's very keen in this everything gets reduced to historicist textual studies instead and um so and he ends up as the as the great opponent of the increasing move for the proclamation of papal infallibility and uh, but uh, in france there's there's a great enthusiasm for the uh, there are opponents there are old style gallicans still there um who are very important but there's also a lot of enthusiasm for papal infallibility and ultramontanism in france because the old idea that that the french hierarchy goes back to the dawn of creation and um, and it can't be touched by papal authority and and all the kind of gallican theories they've been kind of ruined a bit by the french revolution because the uh, the the, the pre-revolutionary french church was completely trashed the French Revolution, French revolutionaries took the principle of national self-determination to the absolute limit of kind of you know national atheism, which completely discredits um, uh, Gallicanism. And when the, the the persecution is finally finished by Napoleon and Pius VII in the Concordat, they just recreate the French Church on the back of a piece of paper. Um, you know, they they create new dioceses and they decide who's going to be the bishops of them and stuff like this. So, so, so the whole idea of an immemorial and untouchable French church is ruined by the fact that the Pope just recreated the French church according to a different model, albeit, and he couldn't be blamed for it. He was doing it because it was the only deal on offer to stop the massacre of Catholics. Um, so Gallicanism has, has, has really suffered uh, in France and, um, and the... Uh, and the um, and, and ultramontanism is now much much more powerful there than it was. Uh, so um, now, but things begin to deteriorate in Italy, um, and uh, they get worse because um, the Austrians are losing their grip on Germany, and um, and the Prussians are beginning to scheme to try and gain control of Germany and drive the Austrians out of Germany. And one of the reasons why the Austrians are weakening in Germany is because uh, the nationalism is you know is a somewhat uh, racist idea and they, they, they uh, certainly in its secular 19th century incarnation and um and especially once the origin of species is published um and um and the uh, and the german nationalists don't they want a united germany as a state they're willing to accept a federal state but they're not willing to accept uh, not a state just a confederation that's no good and in, in their ref, in their part of the 1848 49 revolutions they tried to create a, a united german state um and they'd they'd offered uh, the empire of germany to the Habsburgs, but only on condition that they abandon all their territories that weren't German, right? Because they want a kind of ethnically pure German empire. So, but that most of the Habsburgs' territories are not German. You know, they've got they've got you know huge areas inhabited by different Slav groups. Um, Hungary, uh, which is an enormous chunk, uh, at, the, at this point they still have huge amounts of Italy. So they're like saying, well, okay, you could reduce yourself to a teeny weeny province of southern Germany, and you get to call yourself emperors. And they're like, yeah, we're not doing that. And, and the Habsburgs are never really interested in nationalism anyway. Um, uh, they always very suspicious of it because nationalism is extremely corrosive to their extremely multinational dominions, which were are, are basically little provinces of Christendom left behind after the disappearance of Christendom which they've ended up as, as, as Austrian emperor of. 
So they're not willing to go along with this, and that kind of puts the power in the hands of the Prussians. So the German liberals uh, offer the throne to Prussia instead, but Prussia turns it down because the Prussians are very conservative. Then they're Protestant and they're very statist, but they've but the Prussian monarchy is very conservative and absolutist, and they don't want to receive a, a, the crown of Germany. From 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 pontificating liberals in an assembly in Frankfurt, and they don't think they could hold on to it if they did either. So they turn it down. But in, but that, that doesn't mean they give up on the idea. Instead, they start to plot about how to get hold of it by blood and iron, as the Prussian Chancellor or Minister President, as he is at that point, um, Otto von Bismarck, calls it. Famous uh, gives this speech in the 1860s, where he says that the great issues of did, did, the great issues of the day will not be decided by grand speeches and majority votes, but by blood and iron. And that's very much the Prussian approach to things historically as well. Um, uh, so he, he, Bismarck is a, is a diplomatic and political genius, albeit uh, unfortunately working for the wrong side and the wrong causes. And, uh, and he manipulates uh, German politics, uh, sort of picks a fight with the Danes in a very complicated manner that it would take too long to explain. Um, uh, and tricks the Austrians into supporting him and then stabs them in the back and trigger and, and, and starts a war disputing over the, they, they get these two provinces that were ruled by the king of Denmark which he wanted to add but were German ethnically which he wanted to annex to, to the to the kingdom of Denmark and when um, they, they declare war on him for doing that and the Austrians and the Prussians together on behalf of Germany, and uh, and they beat him easily, and uh, and then they take these provinces and uh, and they give one of them to the Austrians, uh, foolishly the Austrians accept the northern one, and uh, and it's Schleswig and Holstein, and the uh, and the um, the. Uh, the Prussians uh, are supposed to govern the southern one, but the idea was that they were going to give that to a sort of cousin of the King of Denmark, who had a claim to that territory, and he would just become a Danish, he'd become a German prince inside this German confederation, and that'd be the end of it. But instead, the Prussians just basically annex the territory, um, and uh, the Austrians get annoyed about that, as Bismarck intended. They should get annoyed about it because the whole thing was a setup from the start. And so the Austrians declare war on the on the um, on the Prussians, and then the Prussians uh, beat the crap out of them, basically. Um, and uh, in seven weeks, it's called the Seven Weeks War. It's very humiliating, and uh, and and the 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 Prussians uh, join up with the Kingdom of Sardinia, the ones who are trying to ride the nationalist tiger in um, in Italy, and uh, and they force the Austrians to give up um, their te remaining territories. Uh, in Italy at the same time, so the Austrians, through through combined treachery of the of the of the French ruler Napoleon III a little bit earlier, and the the cunning of the Prussians, of of are driven out of Germany and are driven out of Italy, and so they're sort of and, and now they kind of have to sit there and be told what to do by the Hungarians because they're now the largest group in the empire as in its in its abbreviated form. Um, uh, so the um, so Pius the Ninth basically realizes that the writing is on the wall, right? And he hasn't got much time left now uh, so 10 years and this so this has slowly been going on since the defeat of those revolutions in 1848-1849 so 10 years after the um, to the day so although he doesn't tie them together uh, initially he ties them together symbolically so on the feast of the immaculate conception which was the day that the dogma was proclaimed 10 years after the immaculate conception Pius the ninth issues um a a, a, a an encyclical 
quanta cura, which is in which is an infallible statement. It solemnly condemns by his apostolic authority the errors, uh, the principal errors of the day, and he adds to that a syllabus of modern errors, which is a much longer document with eighty odd um, uh, condemned uh, condemned errors of modernity, uh, going into much more detail, which isn't infallible. Uh, it's a uh, so the syllabus of modern errors is a series of, of errors which he's condemned at various different points in different speeches and things and they're all put together in a list of all the errors of the day and then quanta cura is uh, is is it takes about it's about 10 or so uh really the really fundamental points and that and solemnly condemns them and in fact uh, people have, for, uh, basically ignore quanta cura it's terrible in fact um uh, the um uh the Denzinger, the current edition of Denzinger, um, which is it's, it's, the problem with the successive editions of Denzinger is that they, although they, the more research is done with each edition, so you get more footnotes and more documents that were previously overlooked, but also it's kind of got more liberal uh, as, as the different editions have come out. And Quanta Cura, the, some, some key elements of Quanta Cura are just missing from Denzinger. They were there in earlier editions and they're not in the current edition. It's terrifying because, I mean, it says in the, it says in the, um, in fact, there's still a number for it, but it, but the, but the, so so you'll notice you skip a number when you come to that section in Denzinger, but it's just not there in the text, and um, it's it's really bad because it's it's the, I mean, if you look at the formula by which Pius the Tenth condemned these errors, he's like we by our apostolic authority, you know, condemn absolutely all of these pernicious and terrible errors, and 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 command that all the Catholic faithful must hold them as condemned and pernicious. So I mean, it's clearly an infallible definition. But anyway, so um, uh, so so there's now kind of a plan and a and a, and a, and a, at least ex, uh, expressed in negative terms, but nevertheless, there is a a a, 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 a sketch. In, in shadow of of what the Catholic answer to these to these great issues of the day is uh, from the from the point of um, from eighteen sixty four and the promulgation of Quanta Cura and the syllabus of errors. Now, <clears throat> in eighteen sixty seven, as the skies are darkening further for the papacy and its temporal rule in central Italy, um, uh, the Pope holds a big celebration of the uh, anniversary of the martyrdom of Saints Peter and Paul. And lots and lots of bishops uh, come to this celebration, and um, and it is suggested at it that perhaps the time has come to call an ecumenical council to deal with the great issues of the day, um, and all these questions which have come up. And um, now papal infallibility is not heavily pushed yet, um, but it's it's it, it's in the air as one of the things that this this council is going to deal with. But it's generally the modern errors, which which are thought of as, as the most important things, which are going to have to be dealt with. And, and a sort of general updating of Trent. You know, more, more things to deal with, problems that either Trent hadn't dealt with or where the realities have shifted a bit and therefore, therefore new things need to be dealt with. And so, and the following year, he summons an ecumenical council. Uh, now, at this meeting, um, uh, Manning, who is the Archbishop of Westminster in the, the restored uh, hierarchy of England, which actually during the chaos of the Roman Republic and the driving of the Pope out of Rome, the Pope had actually got round to uh, restoring bishops to England, which there hadn't been since the late 16th century, since the last valid bishops died out um, after um, Elizabeth Boleyn created the Church of England. And so... Um, um, so Manning becomes one of the great cheerleaders of um, of the idea of defining papal infallibility, and him and a number of other people who are very ultramontane get together and they sort of have this pact 
that we are going to make sure that papal infallibility gets defined at this ecumenical council. And uh, so, in fact, a lot of people think that the that the sinister um, uh, Rhine group at the Second Vatican Council uh, looked back on the First Vatican Council and saw how incredibly effective Manning and his fellow infallibilists were in 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 plotting in advance to sort of make sure they got control of of, of the procedural mechanisms of Vatican I to ensure that uh, that there was a definition of papal infallibility that they kind of modeled their own strategy uh, to undo much of that work um, uh, um, on on his own tactics but they're very they're very vigorous about this and uh, now as I say the 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 um, the principal purpose of the council is not at all mentioned to be defining papal infallibility but everybody starts talking about it that that's what's going to happen and um, so the um, uh, they get together various commissions to work on preparatory documents and uh, and in fact, um, although after the council, the, the defeated liberals uh, try and claim that that it was all manipulated and it was a tyrannical papal council and there was nothing you could do and everyone was terrified and they had their own pet journalists in Rome at the time coming up with uh, completely fraudulent claims to this effect to try and poison the presentation of the council back in the various different countries. In fact, um, uh, the Pius IX picks a, a German bishop who is an outspoken opponent of the definition of papal infallibility to be the chief expert to design all the procedural rules of the council. So there's there's no there's no legitimacy to this claim at all. Um, but uh, so the council begins its sessions um, in um, in uh, 1869. Um, uh, by which time the Austrians have been driven out of um, driven out of, of any role in Germany, and Bismarck is plotting the final final stages in 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 the conquest of Germany for Prussia, and uh, but nobody realizes quite how how advanced this plan is at this point. Um, uh, Rome is defended from being captured. So by this point, the the, the um, Garibaldi, leading the ideological secular Italian nationalists, has managed to conquer the kingdom of the two Sicilies in the south, and he hands it over to the king of Sardinia in the north. So, so, so the papal states are surrounded by a new kingdom of Italy, which has been declared, which however doesn't include Rome and the territory around Rome itself. But but they but they don't have the pope. He has lots of volunteers. Um, uh, commanded by the grandson of uh, one of the heroes of the Vendean revolt, in fact. But he doesn't have a big enough army to actually really defend Italy, uh, defend um, Rome against a direct assault from this new kingdom of Italy. But uh, Napoleon III in France, who, who's been, uh, who came to power after the collapse of the liberal monarchy of Louis-Philippe, the, uh, the Duke of Orléans, the collaborationist cousin of the, of the rightful French kings, he, he, was, he wasn't very effective as king, got driven out, and eventually Napoleon's uh, nephew, Louis-Napoleon, was elected president of France, and he eventually gets himself proclaimed emperor, but he has the backing of a lot of Catholics who didn't like Louis-Philippe and are worried about secularist forces, and um, and so he's in a funny position because Napoleon III is seen as the champion of the self-determination of nations and of liberalism, but he's also seen as the savior of Catholicism from more extreme um, secular enlightenment forces. And so he kind of 
partly helps and partly hinders the Italian nationalists. So, but by this point, they've proclaimed their kingdom of Italy. They've stolen large chunks of the papal states. They've got control of the south and the north. And as far as Napoleon III is concerned, he's given enough to the liberal wing of his base. He can't afford to give any more to it. So he sends troops into Rome to defend the papal states against any further conquests by the Italian nationalists. So it's in this very difficult situation that this ecumenical council is summoned. And there are five different uh, deputations who are in charge of preparing schemas on different subjects. And, uh, and the most important document in some ways of the council uh, is one which um, Kleutgen, the, the, the neo-Thomist or neo-scholastic Thomist revive, uh, revivalist figure is, is heavily influential in, which is eventually becomes the dogmatic constitution Dei Filius. Uh, on divine revelation. And it contains uh, an awful lot of material, uh, many, many anathemas. It's all solemnly defined right from the beginning. And, um, and it, it begins with a wonderful, um, let's see if I can find it, a wonderful um, uh, description of what's happened since Trent. Um, uh, let's see, where are you? Dave Phileas, come on, that makes sense. Um, uh, basically describing uh, how events have developed over those different centuries. Um, let's have a look at the beginning of day, Phineas. Um, here we are. So, so he describes his general sort of um, stuff about how marvellous Trent was and all the wonderful things that Trent did. And then, um, and then it's, uh, and then it moves on to, uh, then moves on to explaining the things that went wrong. And it says, so this is actually a dogmatic constitution, uh, solemnly defined by, by an ecumenical council. It says, everybody knows that those heresies condemned by the fathers of Trent, which rejected the divine magisterium of the church and allowed religious questions to be a matter for the judgment of each individual, have gradually collapsed into a multiplicity of sects, either at variance or in agreement with one another. And by this means, a good many people have had all faith in Christ destroyed. Indeed, even the Holy Bible itself, which they at once claimed to be the sole source and judge of the Christian faith, is no longer held to be divine, but they begin to assimilate it to the inventions of myth. So this is a description of how the logic of Protestantism itself has led to the breakdown of Christianity as such, and to a sort of absurd liberal Protestantism, which believes in almost nothing. Thereupon, the council continues, there came into being and spread far and wide throughout the world that doctrine of rationalism or naturalism, utterly opposed to the Christian religion, since this is of supernatural origin, which spares no effort to bring it about that Christ, who alone is our Lord and Saviour, is shut out from the minds of people and the moral life of nations. Thus they would establish what they call the rule of simple reason or nature. The abandonment and rejection of the Christian religion and the denial of God and his Christ has plunged the minds of many into the abyss of pantheism, materialism and atheism, and the consequence is that they strive to destroy rational nature itself, to deny any criterion of what is right and just, and to overthrow the very foundations of human society. So, I mean, it's an absolutely brilliant description of how the Reformation led to, uh, to you know, the terrible things which in, in the midst of which we now live. Um, uh, it's brilliantly described there by a solemn uh, document of an ecumenical council. And, um, so it goes out there and it and it really takes down uh, all of these, it solemnly defines the error of all of these things. And it, it, it um, 
so it it, it goes for the uh, the philosophy screw unscrew different fittings uh, theory that you can change the meaning of divine revelation by fiddling with the philosophical categories in which it's expressed. Uh, it defines if anyone shall give a meaning to the doctrines taught by the church as a result of the progress of knowledge different from that by which they have been understood and are now understood. Let him be anathema. Right. So that's boomf. All these people trying to create syntheses of evolution or, uh, or Freudianism or Lord knows what else with Catholicism, then get lost. It was all solemnly condemned uh, by, by the First Vatican Council. Um, uh, then, of course, the, the key philosophical claim for the establishment of Christendom, for the re-establishment of Christendom, is that we know by natural reason that God exists. Um, and therefore, we know by natural reason that we are obliged to give private and public worship to him, right? And that's that's the and we must find what the true religion is and embrace it, right? That's the key first plank um, in um, in any general restoration. And so, so, so Vatican One in De Filius solemnly defines that. It says, "If anyone shall say that the one true God, our Creator and Lord, may not be certainly known um, from the things that have been made by the natural light of human reason, let him be anathema." Right? So, so that you can prove the existence of God by natural reason is solemnly defined um and uh, they also they're very careful about um uh, about uh, any false doctrines of doctrinal development um uh, which and, and also um so they uh, so at the end of the prose section of, of De Filius, they say, and so we following the precept footsteps of our predecessors in accordance with our supreme apostolic office have never left off teaching and defending Catholic truth and condemning erroneous doctrines. But now it is our purpose to profess and declare from this chair of Peter um, uh, before all eyes, the saving teaching of Christ and by the power given to us by God to reject and condemn the contrary errors. Um, uh, hang on. I'm just trying to find where he actually gets to the. Um, uh, may un I, a little bit later he says may understanding so sorry, hence too that meaning of the sacred dogmas is ever to be maintained which has once been declared by Holy Mother Church and there must never be any abandonment of this sense under the pretext or in the name of a more profound understanding. May understanding knowledge and wisdom increase as ages and centuries roll along and greatly and vigorously flourish in each and all in all the individuals and in the whole church but this only in its own proper kind that is to say in the same doctrine the same sense and the same understanding. So they're careful to allow for a concept of doctrinal development, but not one that involves it developing into meaning the opposite of what it meant beforehand, right? Um, which is what most people who invoke the concept nowadays mean uh, by the subject, um, by the by the concept. So we obviously don't have time to go through every single anathema of De Filius. There's an awful lot in there, um, and uh, but it's really, really, really worth reading. It's absolutely brilliant, and it's the beginning of. Uh, is the beginning of the coordinated counterattack to modernity um, that's going to really flourish under Leo the Thirteenth and Pius the Tenth. Now, um, however, there is a there's there's a slight clericalist um, uh, fly in the ointment, uh, which is that some. Um, uh, they're so worried about how how difficult uh, the situation with temporal rulers has become and who counts as a Catholic temporal ruler and who doesn't and who could be trusted and who they would invite to the council to send ambassadors if they were to invite the Catholic princes, um, uh, that they decide to just not mention it. 
So in the bull in which the council is summoned, it sort of says that they assume, of course, that the, the temporal temporal rules will do their best to facilitate the council. But there's no invitation to them to send any ambassadors or anything like that. And that's a big problem, right? Because that, that reinforces this idea of the church being the clergy. And, uh, and the prime minister of France at the time, the prime minister under um, the emperor Napoleon III, um, uh, Emile Olivier, who's actually an agnostic, um, who subsequently goes on to write a very good history of the council, um, uh, which refutes a lot of the nonsense which the liberals who lost and are angry about the council are trying to um, promote. Nevertheless, he... Um, uh, he, he says at the time, he says, by not inviting the, the lay rulers to send ambassadors, Pius IX has proclaimed the separation of church and state. Now, now that, that's obviously he's being mischievous, right? But I mean, but in a way that's, that's kind of true really, because, you know, the clergy, the, the bishops aren't elected by the laity anymore, haven't been for a very long time. Um, and so the only real expression of the, of the fact that the church isn't just the clergy, but is the whole of the faithful that remains is the role which temporal Christian rulers play in, in ecclesiastical affairs. And by, so by not inviting the ambassadors of the, of the princes of Christendom to the council, Pius IX has in an inadvertent way kind of proclaimed the separation of church and state, which is definitely not what the plan was. Okay, so um, so that's that's a little cloud, no smaller than a man's hand, um, uh, looming in the background. Um, but anyway, uh, so as they realise that things are, are getting bad and that there's a danger of uh, the, um, the, the congregations take a very long time to debate things and there's a danger that the council won't be able to do as much as it was planning to do if the, uh, if the um, uh, machinations of the, uh, of the new kingdom of Italy and of the Prussians um, get really out of hand, there starts to become big pressure from the infallibilists. Uh, who've managed to get control of the um, of the delegation de fide, who, whose job it is to put together the draft documents on doctrinal topics. Um, they uh, there's a big push to to have a just a instead of a general very long document that deals with lots of different questions about ecclesiology about the nature of the church, which is the plan. It was the original plan and is still the plan. But instead of having that as one big document, they say, well, why don't we deal with what the authority of the Pope is in a distinct document, which we can definitely get done. And, um, and then we'll, we'll deal with that. And then, and then once that's in the bag, we can, we can sort out the rest. Now this, the, the people who are opposed to the definition of papal infallibility fall into two different groups. Uh, there are the inopportunists, who are the people who think that it's it's true, but it's a bad idea to define it. And they basically think it's a bad idea to define it either because it's going to cause Protestants uh, to become even more hostile to the church and it'll be harder to convert them, or they hold it's a bad idea to define it because secretly they think it isn't true, but they don't want to admit it because it's very popular, or they think it's a bad idea to define it because... Uh, they think that the popes will go nuts once it's been defined, that the fact that it hasn't been defined causes them to be worried about people denying it. And so they think twice and three times before doing things. Whereas once you hand them the big nuclear button of papal infallibility, they're just going to go mad and start machine gunning everybody with documents, which is in fact what happens. Um, uh, so the, <laughs> so, um, so, um, so yeah, there's, not everybody who's an inopportunist is is uh, is is uh, 
a bad guy who secretly denies the doctrine. Some of them didn't, some of them, or, or just a, a weak need ecumenist who doesn't want to upset the Protestants by telling them too many true things in one go. Uh, there are people who have, have more sensible reasons for thinking that it's inopportune. But anyway, so um, uh, they, some of them get really freaked out because some, uh, uh, at one point, some uh, in the preparations for the council, they, um, uh, the Pope asks uh, for his um, um, representatives in France to send him a confidential account of, um, of what people in France are thinking about papal infallibility and whether it's a good idea. And uh, he gets sent back a very enthusiastic account of how there's an awful lot of support for it in France. And that some people are actually saying that there ought to be, it ought to be declared by acclamation as if like the council wouldn't really be necessary anymore. They just gather all the bishops. The Pope comes into St. Peter's Basilica and says, am I infallible? And they go, yes, you're infallible. And what do we say to people who say you're not infallible? Anathema. And he says, great, you can all go home now. I'll deal for, with it from here. No need for any more councils uh, because I'm infallible and I can do it all myself. And uh, so, so this... Um, irresponsible and not sensible suggestion uh, is, is mentioned in this report and um, Pius IX rather mischievously, I'm not quite sure, well it's actually his Secretary of State who does it, but I'm, I'm not sure whether he's trying to build a position for himself by having a more extreme scary position to hold over the inopportunists as a kind of if you don't let me have my definition then you're going to get this instead um uh, but he he basically hands over this document to uh, uh la civiltà cattolica the the jesuit semi-official journal which has become very important in the decades preceding the council and they just print it as uh, a from a from a french observer or something and uh, and this causes complete panic among the opportunists so it may have been a very clever manipulative political technique in order to make sure that they they agree to a very reasoned and well worked out dogmatic constitution on papal infallibility for terror of the idea of papal infallibility being proclaimed by uh, by acclamation in, in st peter's basilica so um now but the problem is that, uh, and one of the problems which has resulted from Vatican I is that, uh, well, A, it had to end early for reasons we'll get to in a second, but also uh, it, it was the liberals were trying to distort what was going to be defined uh, in regard to papal infallibility and universal jurisdiction in order to scare people into not accepting the definition after it was given and into opposing it before it was. So they depict it as a kind of the Pope is an oracle inspired by God who can say, who just produces essentially new pages of scripture with every encyclical and so they're, they're deliberately caricaturing it in order to try and create this impression in order to prevent it from being promulgated and then once it is to try and get people to refuse to accept it and then you've got some other people like the editor of l'univers of the universe which is a big um, um louis vuillot who's who's a as a big very uh, sort of fire-breathingly ultramontane popular catholic newspaper in france at the time and he says some loose things on that on on, on that point as well and this guy wilfred ward in england he also he also likes you know talks about how he how he looks forward to the day when he can receive a new infallible definition together with his newspaper on his breakfast table every morning and this sort of thing is really freaking people out so you've got the kind of hyper montanist people who are massively overemphasizing and, and distorting the doctrine of papal infallibility and then you've got the liberals who are doing exactly the same thing uh, in order to scare people into opposing the definition of papal infallibility meanwhile the the much more sensible actual theologians and bishops at the council are slowly putting together the actual dogmatic constitution pastor eternus uh, on the um on the infallible magisterium and universal jurisdiction of the roman pontiff and um 
uh, which contains a number of uh, a number of solemn definitions in it. And uh, so the first remedy for hypermontanism uh, is to go and read the actual definition of papal infallibility, which is grand and and powerful and gives very well defines the pope to have very great powers over the whole church and uh, the power to teach infallibly but is very well argued and 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 also makes it clear the narrow conditions in which that infallibility is actually realized and uh, the second thing to do after actually reading the document is to buy um uh, this uh well Ignatius Press, if you'll allow me to quote the title of a rival publisher, um, uh, published this uh, uh, this this speech uh, 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 under the title "The Gift of Infallibility," um, which is which is it's it's the relatio, which is the final speech which Bishop Gasser of Brixen, um, which is now in Austria, was now in Italy, but was then in Austria. Um, uh, he gives uh, he's in charge of the commission which is putting together the uh, the dogmatic constitution on papal infallibility and uh over the course of the construction of the constitution's drafts what happens is different drafts are given to the council fathers they 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 sometimes they vote on whether they like it don't like it or like it but with amendments and uh, and if, if you don't get a moral unanimity so like an overwhelming majority of people in favor without amendments uh, then you go back to the drawing board and when you go back to the drawing board um uh, suggestions for uh, edits are sent in by the bishops and before each each vote when it when when a draft could potentially be passed um the uh the um relator um uh gives uh in this case bishop gasser gives a speech explaining what um the relatio in which he gives explains which amendments were incorporated by the drafting committee and which weren't and why and what the meaning of, of different parts of the document is so this speech is really really important because it's the last speech given before the final vote in which papal infallibility is actually defined and he goes through the whole of the document and explains why he included certain things and why he didn't include others and what different things mean and why so although it's not an infallible or even a magisterial document in itself it's absolutely key to the correct interpretation of um Pastor Eternus, and it's uh, it's it's cited four times by Vatican II. In fact, when Vatican II is in Lumen Gentium is explaining again the doctrine of papal infallibility, it cites Gasser's speech. Um, so it's really really important to read. Now, um, uh, but uh, in the meantime, um, uh, the, something weird happened. So basically, Isabella II of Spain who's a bit useless, is deposed as the Queen of Spain. And uh, a bunch of liberals take over Spain, uh, but, they, but they're relatively conservative liberals and they want Spain to still be a monarchy. But there's a big dispute. There's already a dispute over the succession of Isabella II, which would take forever to explain, which led to the Carlist Wars. And yes, it's much too complicated. Um, and um, so they, instead of, of going, and they're very conservative, the Carlists, the followers of the rival candidate to Isabella years back, they're, they're much more conservative and, and integralist uh, than the, um, in fact, that's is Spain where that term originally arises to mean a, a not Disneyland, but real Christendom. Um, uh, the, um, uh so so the having deposed isabella the people who deposed isabella the second they don't want to replace her with with um with the ultra conservative carlist candidate so instead they decide to ditch the spanish royal dynasty altogether and just pick another dynasty there's a lot of this happens in the 19th century for somewhere else so they decide well the prussians are getting quite powerful and the prussians the hohenzollern dynasty one of the branches of the hohenzollern dynasty never went protestant 
Um, in fact, they, they end up becoming the kings of Romania, but at this point, they're actually Catholics. Um, but they are still Hohenzollerns, and they're still the cousins of the kings of Prussia. So they say, well, why don't you, the you, the the other Hohenzollerns, why wouldn't why don't you like you could become your your uh, Leopold, whatever he's called, the head of that branch, could become the king of Spain, and that means that they'd be forever friends with the Prussians, and that seems like a good idea. Now, Napoleon III is already really, really concerned about the fact that the Prussians are getting much, much more powerful and they're going to become a big problem and some, because basically the fact that they take over, take over Germany is, is what causes the world wars uh, and the European Union. Uh, um, uh, and uh, so the, um, uh, so, um, uh, so he's, they're right to be worried, but they've left it a little bit late in the day. They've been kind of feeding the tiger of Italian nationalism uh, um, and, uh, and and not doing anything about the the uh, the tiger of German nationalism. And uh, so Napoleon III is like, no, 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 no. There's no way we're going to have a Hohenzollern in Spain. We're not going to have Hohenzollerns in Germany and Hohenzollerns in Spain. And Prussia it borders France at this point, even though it shouldn't, that's crazy. Prussia is like way off to the east traditionally, and is, is you know, most of what was originally Prussia is now in Poland. Um, and um, uh, but the but at the, at the Congress of Vienna, they gave loads of territories in the Rhineland that used to be little territories ruled just by a local knight or by a local bishop that were, that, that were eaten for breakfast by the French revolutionaries very quickly. So at the Congress of Vienna, they decided, well, in case the French get out of control again, we can't have just these little teeny weeny statelets ruling uh, the Rhineland. We're going to just give the Rhineland to Prussia. And so then a scary military power will be standing there holding the border against France. They didn't realize that the scary military power of the 20th century wasn't going to be France, it was going to be Germany. But anyway, so, so they, they, um, they, uh, they give them this territory. So, so Napoleon III is like, oh, no, 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 no way, we're not having the Hohenzollerns taking over Spain. So he sends off an ambassador to go and see the King of Prussia, Wilhelm I. And uh, the King of Prussia says, um, uh, and he, he wants a promise from the King of Prussia that he's not going to allow his cousin to take over Spain. Uh, and uh, Wilhelm I gives him this promise. He meets him at this, this spa resort called Ems. Uh, and uh, and Wilhelm the first says, yeah, okay, fine, yeah, I agree. That is a bit too much. Um, uh, we were, and and so that's apparently the end of it. But Wilhelm the second then sends a telegram to Bismarck, his minister president, in which he says, yeah, uh, the French ambassador came, and I said, yeah, no, 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 we we won't go with that because that's that's too that's too rude and over the top, and we won't allow cousin to take over Spain. And uh, mind you, he kept going on about it, and it was a bit irritating. He kept going. The French ambassador kept saying, you know, I want a promise that no prince of the House of Hohenzollern will ever consider ever going on Spain, ever taking over Spain ever again. They'll never go on holiday. They'll never eat. Uh, they'll never eat any any whatever paella. Um, there's there's no um, and uh, so the um, uh, so Wilhelm the first is a little bit annoyed. So I think in fact the conversation was relatively civilized, but I think the French ambassador was a little bit too bumptious. Um, and uh, and and Wilhelm the Wilhelm the first. Sorry, did I say second? Wilhelm the first uh, says. To Bismarck in this private telegram, you know that that he was rather rude. Uh, Bismarck is a cunning swine and has had this plan being hatched for you know ages. Um, uh, so basically, he gets the telegram 
and he edits it slightly. I think he famously moves a comma somewhere in order to give the impression that, that Wilhelm I was more annoyed than he actually was and was a bit rude to the French ambassador. And then he leaks it to the press. And, um, and But in France, there's this kind of big nationalist sort of concern about, about the Prussians and where they're going with, with their increasing power in Germany. And so then they're desperate to sort of crush the Prussians. And Napoleon III has never really won any significant victories. And so his kind of Napoleon-ness is looking a bit stale. And he's, 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 he, he had this silly... In, plan to get one of the Habsburgs on the throne of Mexico that went horribly wrong and has made him look a bit stupid. So he's getting rather old and he hasn't won any great victories and he's worried that it's going to be damaging to the prestige of his dynasty and he's worried about the fact that the Prussians are getting out of control. And so he decides to take enormous offence at this edited telegram and declare war on, German, on, on Prussia, uh, which was a terrible mistake and was what Bismarck was planning all along. Anyway, back to Vatican I. The bishops are voting on this final, um, the final uh, draft of this of of past returnus, and, uh, and 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 while they vote, a massive thunderstorm gathers over Rome, and they're actually gathered in one of the transepts of St Peter's Basilica because there was originally about seven hundred bishops, and by the time they get to the final vote, it's down to five hundred and something because. Uh, a lot of the inopportunists decide to go go home because they're put in a difficult position because they they don't in conscience don't want to vote for papal infallibility but they don't actually most of them don't actually disagree with papal infallibility so they don't want to vote against a dogmatic constitution that they actually think contains true teaching but they also wish that it wasn't being promulgated so instead they decide to go home so by this point you've got 500 and something bishops still present in in the basilica and a massive thunderstorm um strikes up and the, and the sky goes completely black and you've got these altar boys uh um running around st peter's basilica trying to relight candles because you know there's drafts from the howling winds outside getting into the basilica and blowing out the candles and people are trying to vote and they all have to vote one after another right so they stand up and they say whether they accept or don't accept the or or with or accept with changes uh, the um the final draft so they stand up in increasing darkness because the candles constantly being blown out and not and not lit lit again fast enough and then they'll say i accept and then boom, boom, there's a massive thunder strike and the entire basilica lights up like daylight for a split second and then goes completely black again. And the terrified bishop sits down um, and, uh, and it goes on to the next bishop who has to stand up. So, so, I mean, you can't really imagine more dramatic circumstances for the, for the, for the voting through of a dogma by an ecumenical council. And, um, and so finally, it's overwhelmingly voted. In fact, only two bishops vote against it uh, in the end, in the final vote. So it is, uh, I think it would count as moral unanimity, even if the opportunists hadn't gone home, inopportunists hadn't gone home. And uh, one of the two bishops, uh, amusingly, is the Bishop of Little Rock, Arkansas. I don't know if you're aware of that, but he was one of the, the two who held out against papal infallibility. And um, and they those two bishops uh, throw themselves on their knees in front of Pius IX and submit to the, well, Pius IX pronounces his own ratification of the dogma and tsh-tum, papal infallibility and universal jurisdiction is infallibly defined and then the two final dissenting bishops throw themselves on their knees in front of Pius IX and and submit to the dogma of papal infallibility um, uh, so it's all very impressive and then the next day France declares war on Germany um, and uh, France declares war on Prussia and uh, and as a result uh, they um, they get really worried that the Prussians are going to do an alliance with the Italians 
to invade uh, to invade uh, France from the south, in, and that wouldn't be a big problem because the Italians don't seem to be very difficult to beat. But the but it would be it would be a distraction from the war. So the um, so they they decide and th and they think well the and the Italians can use as a casus belli as as a pretext for going to war the fact that we're we're feeling that we've got French troops in the papal states. So Napoleon III decides to prevent to stop the Italians having a pretext for um, attacking France. He pulls the French troops out of the papal states. So it becomes clear immediately that the Italian uh, nationalist government is now going to invade the papal states. So most of the bishops go home. So some bishops remain, but uh, but but not for very long. So there's a few more discussions of different schemas. But in the end, the Pope has to suspend the council indefinitely. And as I say, it doesn't get doesn't get um, formally closed until the 19, uh, was it 19, is it 19, late 50s or 60s? I can't remember whether, it, which point it is that, that John 23rd actually, but it's after he's, after he announces he's going to summon a new council, he, he dissolves Vatican I. Um, uh, there's all this misinformation that's disseminated about the definition of papal infallibility um, uh, causes a lot, a lot of reticence, but slowly various people who were inopportunists, most famously um, St. John Henry Newman was an inopportunist for the last of the three reasons I listed. He thought that it would lead to um, uh, incontinent issuing of documents by popes. And also he thought that people would ignore anything that wasn't an infallible definition. Although in fact, that wasn't really what happened. What happens to people ignored everything, including the infallible <laughs> definitions of it. Well, you, I mean, you've got the kind of neoconservatives in the church who treat absolutely everything, every burp, and and scratching behind the ear of a pope is treated as as an ex cathedra definition, and uh, and then you've got the liberals who treat nothing as definitive at all whatsoever, um, uh, which has been the sort of side effect of the definition of papal infallibility. But um, uh, but they slowly one by one as they kind of you know digest the dogma and and understand that the, the 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 disinformation about the rigging of the council is all false. Various people submit. The Ignaz von Dollinger is is become completely hysterical and only ever listens to his own propaganda, and he he is he refuses to submit and is and is excommunicated by his bishop. Um, in the end, the German bishops all give in, including very reluctantly after a long time, the bishop who wrote the procedural rules and was opposed to the definition. He finally drags from his own teeth uh, the um, uh, uh, submission to the dogma of papal infallibility, and. Um, but a group of some uh, opponents um, uh, refuse to submit and they call themselves the old Catholics and they find some Jansenist bishops who've been in schism from Rome for a long time now in the Netherlands to come to Germany and Switzerland and start ordaining um, uh, ordaining a new line of anti-infallibilist bishops and, and, and create what's called the old Catholic Church, which still exists. I've seen a, I've seen I didn't go in because I didn't want to be struck dead by the Almighty for entering the premises. But but uh, I, I saw a, a old Catholic Church in Linz in Austria once. Um, but they still exist. But almost immediately, I mean, really immediately, basically, they become super liberal. So they they abolish like all penance and fasting, and they they start having a married clergy and um, 
and I think they have female clergy and stuff now as well. And they've got so liberal now that the Holy See doesn't recognise the validity of their orders anymore, which is handy because because the Anglicans, when, when the Anglicans um, start panicking about the invalidity of their orders, they often scurry off to try and find an old Catholic bishop to secretly reordain them. But now, fortunately, the old Catholic bishops have gone so crazy that they've inv invalidated their own orders. Um, uh, so so that that uh, that sneaky path has been closed off. Uh, and of course, some they they call it the Dutch touch in the Church of England. It's this kind of uh, it's uh, sort of. A, a nun friend of mine called it the Frank Frankenstein's monster ecclesiology. You try and create a, a, a church out of out of the rotting flesh of various dead churches. You try and sew them back together and get some Jansenist lightning into the body in order to uh, get it back together again. But uh, it doesn't work. Um, and uh, so the um, uh, yeah. Um, so two months later the uh, Italian uh, nationalists storm the city of Rome. And Pius IX is, um, uh, Pius IX, he doesn't want, he's very emotional, Pius IX, and he's actually quite pro-Italian unification, even though he's very upset about how it happened. And he used to get like a Vittor Emmanuel II, the, uh, the, the king of Sardinia, who, who's, who's, whose regime has, has created this Italian nationalist state, he, um, who, who's actually had a long and, and friendly correspondence with, despite the fact that, politically speaking, they were bitter enemies. He used to get his secretary to read out to him accounts of the victories of Vitor Emmanuel, and he used to weep for joy at, uh, at the fact that, that, his, that his friend had won these great victories against him. And you're like, but the, um, so, so, uh, um, Pius IX is very keen that there shouldn't be a bloodbath um, uh, in the final defence of Rome, uh, greatly to the annoyance of all these volunteers from all over the world. There's one in uh, in the English College Chapel in Rome. There's an English. Uh, there's the tomb of an Englishman who died defending um, uh, the, the papal states against the Italian nationalists. But um, but Pius IX doesn't want a bloodbath. Whereas um, uh, all the volunteers, the papal zouaves as they're called, they're, they're really keen to like die. It's like the new crusade. We're going to die for the Holy Father. And and so, but he sends out orders at the last minute that they must basically fire a few shots against the invading nationalists in order to show that it wasn't that he didn't concede because because the because uh, um, the Italian government sends these letters saying you know for the sake of order and peace don't you think now you ought to just let us have the paper and he's like you know no I will not be blackmailed order you know you're the ones creating disorder and so he refuses to give in but he doesn't want to actually have people die for the sake of his states because um, he hates that idea. And I mean, the Italian is very Italian sentiment. Whenever, whenever um, Italian soldiers get kidnapped abroad, you know, by the Taliban or whatever, unlike the Brits and the Americans, the Italians immediately pay the ransom. <laughs> and, uh, the, but uh, so, so, yeah, it's very, you know, there's an admirable in its way sense of desire not to see people die unnecessarily. But anyway, um, Pius IX says that they must fire a few shots and then wave the white flag and surrender Rome to, to the Italian nationalists. But it must be a surrender in battle. It can't be, it can't be, it can't be an agreed legal transfer. It must be clear that it was taken by illegitimate force. And, um, and then from that, from that point onwards, uh, Pius IX lives another eight years. Um, but from that point onwards, the popes until the 20s, late 20s, are the prisoners of the Vatican locked up in uh, in the uh, the Leonine city, the area around St Peter's itself, 
uh, the Quirinal Palace, which is the official residence of the Pope, is uh, the they won't um, they smashed the Italians, smashed down the doors, and hand it over to become the residence of the King of Italy and now of the President of Italy, um, and um, and uh, but the Pope's as it were like Aeneas taking the Palladium from the ruins of Troy, the Pope drag from the ruins of their states and from the the ruined attempt of the Vienna conference to recreate Christendom, the one last superpower, which is the solemn definition of papal infallibility and universal ordinary jurisdiction, which is going to make them the unquestioned absolute monarchs of the church uh, for the first time in uh, in the history of the papacy, from which the uh, dramatic and terrifying events of the 21st Ecumenical Council will arise. And we'll save that for next week. <laughs> uh, Dr. Great, thank you as always.